What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk, black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit WorldAfropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. WorldAfropedia.com. Recently, a sold-out crowd packed the first parish in Cambridge, Massachusetts for a Harvard Books event. Please join me in welcoming Robin Young and Angie Thomas. Believe me, that rapturous ovation was not for me. It was for 29-year-old young adult author Angie Thomas, a former small-time rapper from Mississippi who was inspired by the Black Lives Matter movement to write. Her first novel, The Hate You Give, or Thug, was the subject of an epic publishing house bidding war. It debuted at number one on the New York Times bestselling YA list the day it came out a year ago. A film version just wrapped, and on this day when we spoke earlier this month, that movie had also become the subject of headlines. (laughs) Okay, is everybody still celebrating Angie Thomas Appreciation Day? Let's explain. The book, The Hate You Give, and the film tell the story of Star, a young black teen who witnesses the police shooting of her unarmed innocent friend. With the help of family and her white boyfriend, Star becomes an activist. Now, in the film, the white boyfriend was supposed to be played by Kean Lawley, but he was fired after his racist videos, including the N-word, were discovered. His fans then turned on Angie, who was involved with the film but had nothing to do with the firing, Her fans then rallied behind her with the hashtag Angie Thomas Appreciation Day. That must have been really hard. It was. I was, of course, severely disappointed. In him. In him. That word has a lot of power, you know. Sometimes people tell you, oh, it's just a word. No, it's not just a word. But I am grateful for the support. Um, Seeing that hashtag trend had me in tears. And a lot of this was um, Black Twitter. Black Twitter is a thing. It's not a website. For those who go on the internet searching, where is black Twitter? (laughs) If you're not in it, you don't get it. (laughs) Okay.
This room is filled with mother-daughter book clubs, high school English classes, black, white, brown. In just one year, Angie has become their oracle. Her book tells how Star, who lives in a violent inner-city black neighborhood, is sent by her parents to a private white school in another town because they want to protect her. And this begins her Olympic-level gymnastic moves, trying to straddle two worlds and code switch, you know, while she does it. I think to an extent for a lot of us um, African-Americans, code switching is often, it feels like a survival tactic. If I came up here and I was speaking a certain way, you may assume that I'm ignorant just because of that. I'm code switching right now. Um, (laughs) But Star's story and living in those two different worlds is definitely something that I connected with because I went to a mostly white upper-class private Christian college in conservative Mississippi while living in the hood. What I say about my classmates, you may be this person, and if it is, I'm not shading you. I'm just saying this is who they were. They're those Christians who say, I love Jesus, but I don't want anyone to have any rights. So I had to be two different people in two very different worlds. I often tell people I would leave my house playing Tupac, and by the time I got to my school, I was playing the Jonas Brothers. Do not judge me. (laughs) Um, I had to figure out who I was, where I was, at least I thought I did. Eventually, I got to the point where I said, you know what, if people can accept me as I am, I don't need them in my life. Why did you give her a white boyfriend? Oh, that's a good question. And you know, (laughs) I I get asked that question a lot, and it usually comes from older black women. (laughs) (laughs) With the character of Chris... I wanted to show what a real ally looks like. Wow! Hey, yo, drama, hold up, sir. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Stop the motherfucking record. Right. I want you to pondy replay, drama. Pondy replay. <laughs> <laughs> Just give him one more chance, man. Run that shit the fuck back. Why did you give her a white boyfriend? Ooh, that's a good question. And you know, <laughs> I, I get asked that question a lot, and it usually comes from older black women. <laughs> <laughs> With the character of Chris... I wanted to show what a real ally looks like. And Chris learns to do something that is so important for an ally to do. That's listen. Context of white supremacy. Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's day, Friday, March 8th, excuse me, March 16th, 2018. So I have been told this is our Friday book club. We are reading The Hate You Give, written by Angie Stone. We are picking up on chapter four. I don't have anything to add to the audio segment that you heard at the beginning. That uh, was just published at the end of February, just maybe two weeks ago. Our timing, pretty good with the beginning of the book. But uh, yeah, I have nothing else to say. Other than we should keep that in mind as we read that Angie's white boyfriend, who we have yet to meet, Chris, he is supposed to be an example of a white ally, in quotes. Context of white supremacy, the hate you give audio segment number one. Or that night. Natasha tries to convince me to follow her to the fire hydrant, and Khalil begs for me to go for a ride with him. I force a smile, my lips trembling, and tell them I can't hang out. They keep asking, and I keep saying no. 
Darkness crawls toward them. I try to warn them, but my voice doesn't work. The shadow swallows them up in an instant. Now it creeps toward me. I back away, only to find it behind me. I wake up. My clock glows with the numbers 11.05. I suck in deep breaths. Sweat glues my tank top and basketball shorts to my skin. Sirens scream nearby and bricks and other dogs bark in response. Sitting on the side of my bed, I rub my face as if that'll wipe the nightmare away. No way I can go back to sleep. Not if it means seeing them again. My throat is lined with sandpaper and aches for water. When my feet touch the cold floor, goosebumps pop up all over me. Daddy always has the air conditioning on high in the spring and summer, turning the house into a meat locker. The rest of us shiver our butts off, but he enjoys it, saying, A little cold never hurt nobody. A lie. I drag myself down the hall. Halfway to the kitchen, I hear Mama say, Why can't they wait? She just saw one of her best friends die. She doesn't need to relive that right now. I stop. Light from the kitchen stretches into the hallway. We have to investigate, Lisa, says a second voice, Uncle Carlos, Mama's older brother. We want the truth as much as anyone. You mean y'all want to justify what that pig did? Daddy says, investigate my ass. Maverick, don't make this something it's not, Uncle Carlos says. A 16-year-old black boy is dead because a white cop killed him. What else could it be? Shh, Mama hisses. Keep it down. Star had the hardest time falling asleep. Uncle Carlos says something, but it's too low for me to hear. I inch closer. This isn't about black or white, he says. Bullshit, says Daddy. If this was out in Riverton Hills and his name was Richie, we wouldn't be having this conversation. I heard he was a drug dealer, says Uncle Carlos. And that makes it okay? Daddy asks. I didn't say it did, but it could explain Brian's decision if he felt threatened. A no lodges in my throat. Aching to be yelled out, Khalil wasn't a threat that night. And what made the cop think he was a drug dealer? Wait, Brian? That's 115's name? Oh, so you know him, Daddy mocks. I ain't surprised. He's a colleague, yes, and a good guy, believe it or not. I'm sure this is hard on him. Who knows what he was thinking at the time? You said it yourself. He thought Khalil was a drug dealer, Daddy says. A thug. Why he assumed that, though? What? By looking at Khalil? Explain that, detective. Silence. Why was she even in the car with a drug dealer? Uncle Carlos asks. Lisa, I keep telling you. You need to move her and Sakani out of this neighborhood. It's poisonous. I've been thinking about it. And we're not going anywhere, Daddy says. Maverick... She's seen two of her friends get killed, Mama says, two. 
and she's only 16. And one was at the hands of a person who was supposed to protect her. What, you think if you live next door to them, they'll treat you different? Why does it always have to be about race with you? Uncle Carlos asked. Other races aren't killing us nearly as much as we're killing ourselves. Negro, please. If I kill Tyrone, I'm going to prison. If a cop kills me, he's getting put on leave. Maybe. You know what? There's no point in having this conversation with you, Uncle Carlos says. Will you at least consider letting Star speak to the detectives handling the case? We should probably get her an attorney first, Carlos, Mama says. That's not necessary right now, he says. And it wasn't necessary for that cop to pull the trigger, says Daddy. You really think we're going to let them talk to our daughter and twist her words around because she doesn't have a lawyer? Nobody's going to twist her words around. I told you, we want the truth to come out, too. Oh, we know the truth, and that's not what we want, says Daddy. We want justice. Uncle Carlos sighs. Lisa, the sooner she talks to the detectives, the better. It will be a simple process. All she has to do is answer some questions. That's it. No need to spend money to get an attorney just yet. Frankly, Carlos, we don't want anyone to know Star was there, Mama says. She's scared. I am, too. Who knows what's going to happen? I get that, but I assure you she'll be protected. If you don't trust the system, can you at least trust me? I don't know says Daddy. Can we? You know what, Maverick? I've just about had it with you. You can get out my house then. It wouldn't even be your house if it wasn't for me and my mom. Y'all stop, Mama says. I shift my weight, and goddamn if the floor doesn't creak, which is like sounding an alarm. Mama glances around the kitchen doorway and down the hall straight at me. Star, baby. What you doing up? Now I have no choice but to go to the kitchen. The three of them are sitting around the table, my parents in their pajamas and Uncle Carlos in some sweats and a hoodie. Hey, baby girl, he says. We didn't wake you up, did we? No, I say, sitting next to Mama. I was already awake. Nightmares. All of them look sympathetic, even though I didn't say it for sympathy. I kind of hate sympathy. What are you doing here? I ask Uncle Carlos. Sakani has a stomach bug and begged me to bring him home. And your uncle was just getting ready to leave, Daddy adds. Uncle Carlos's jaw twitches. His face has gotten rounder since he made detective. He has Mama's high yellow complexion, as Nana calls it. And when he gets mad, his face turns deep red, like it is now. I'm sorry about Khalil, baby girl, he says. I was just telling your parents how the detectives would like for you to come in and answer a few questions. But you don't have to do it if you don't want to, Daddy says. You know what, Uncle Carlos begins. Stop. Please, says Mama. She looks at me. Munch, do you want to talk to the cops? I swallow. 
I wish I could say yes, but I don't know. On one hand, it's the cops. It's not like I'll be telling just anybody. On the other hand, it's the cops. One of them killed Khalil. But Uncle Carlos is a cop, and he wouldn't ask me to do something that would hurt me. Will it help Khalil get justice? I ask. Uncle Carlos nods. It will. Will 115 be there? Who? The officer. That's his badge number, I say. I remember it. Oh, no. He won't be there, I promise. It'll be okay. Uncle Carlos's promises are guarantees, sometimes even more than my parents. He never uses that word unless he absolutely means it. Okay, I say. I'll do it. Thank you. Uncle Carlos comes over and gives me two kisses to my forehead, the way he's done since he used to tuck me in. Lisa, just bring her after school on Monday. It shouldn't take too long. Mama gets up and hugs him. Thank you. She walks him down the hall toward the front door. Be safe, okay? And text me when you get home. Yes, ma'am. Sounded like our mama, he teases. Whatever. You just better text me. Okay, okay. Good night. Mama comes back to the kitchen, pulling her robe together. Munch, your father and I are visiting Miss Rosalie in the morning instead of going to church. You're welcome to come if you want. Yeah, Daddy says. And ain't no uncle pressuring you to go. Mama cuts him a quick glare, then turns to me. So, you think you're up for it, Star? Talking to Ms. Rosalie may be harder than talking to the cops, honestly. But I owe it to Khalil to pay his grandmother a visit. She may not even know I was a witness to the shooting. If she somehow does and wants to know what happened, more than anybody she has the right to ask. Yeah. I'll go. We better find her an attorney before she talks to the detectives, Daddy says. Maverick, Mama sighs. If Carlos doesn't think it's necessary just yet, I trust his judgment. Plus, I'll be with her the entire time. Good thing somebody trusts his judgment, says Daddy. And you really been thinking again about moving? We discussed this already. Maverick, I'm not going there with you tonight. How are we going to change anything around here if we... Maverick, she says through gritted teeth. Whenever Mama breaks a name down like that, you better hope it's not yours. I said, I'm not going there tonight. She side-eyes him, waiting for the comeback. There isn't one. Try and get some sleep, baby, she tells me, and kisses my cheek before going to their room. Daddy goes to the refrigerator. You want some grapes? Yeah. How come you and Uncle Carlos always fighting? Cause he a buster. He joins me at the table with a bowl of white grapes. But for real, he ain't never liked me. Thought I was a bad influence on your mama. Lisa was wild when I met her, though, 
like all them other Catholic schoolgirls. I bet he was more protective of Mama than Seven is with me, huh? Oh, yeah, he says. Carlos acted like he was Lisa's daddy. When I got locked up, he moved y'all in with him and blocked my calls. Even took her to a divorce attorney. He grins. Still couldn't get rid of me. I was three when Daddy went in prison. Six when he got out. A lot of my memories include him, but a lot of my firsts don't. First day of school. The first time I lost a tooth. The first time I rode a bike without training wheels. In those memories, Uncle Carlos's face is where Daddy's should have been. I think that's the real reason they're always fighting. Daddy drums the mahogany surface of the dining table, making a thump, thump, thump beat. The nightmares will go away after a while, he says. They're always the worst right after. That's how it was with Natasha. How many people have you seen die? Enough. Worst one was my cousin Andre. His finger seems to instinctively trace the tattoo on his forearm, an A with a crown over it. A drug deal turned into a robbery, and he got shot in the head twice, right in front of me. A few months before you were born, in fact. That's why I named you Star. He gives me a small smile. My light during all that darkness. Daddy chomps on some grapes. Don't be scared about Monday. Tell the cops the truth. And don't let them put words in your mouth. God gave you a brain. You don't need theirs. And remember that you didn't do nothing wrong. The cop did. Don't let them make you think otherwise. Something's bugging me. I wanted to ask Uncle Carlos, but I couldn't for some reason. Daddy's different, though. While Uncle Carlos somehow keeps impossible promises, Daddy keeps it real with me. You think the cops want Khalil to have justice? I ask. Thump, 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 thump. The truth casts a shadow over the kitchen. People like us in situations like this become hashtags, but they rarely get justice. I think we all wait for that one time, though, that one time when it ends right. Maybe this can be it. I don't know, Daddy says. I guess we'll find out. Sunday morning, we pull up to a small yellow house. Bright flowers bloom below the front porch. I used to sit with Khalil on that porch. My parents and I hop out the truck. Daddy carries a foil-covered pan of lasagna that Mama made. Sakani claims he's still not feeling good, so he stayed home. Seven's there with him. I don't buy this sick act, though. Sakani always gets some kind of bug right as spring break ends. Going up Miss Rosalie's walkway floods me with memories. I have scars tattooed on my arms and legs from falls on this concrete. One time I was on my scooter and Khalil pushed me off because I hadn't given him a turn. When I got up, skin was missing from most of my knee. I never screamed so loud in my life. We played hopscotch and jumped rope on this walkway, too.
Khalil never wanted to play at first, talking about how those were girls' games. He always gave in when me and Natasha said the winner got a freeze cup, frozen Kool-Aid in a styrofoam cup, or a pack of Nihilators, a.k.a. Now and Laters. Ms. Rosalie was the neighborhood candy lady. I was at her house almost as much as I was at my own. Mama and Ms. Rosalie's youngest daughter, Tammy, were best friends growing up. When Mama got pregnant with me, she was in her senior year of high school, and Nana put her out the house. Ms. Rosalie took her in until my parents eventually got an apartment of their own. Mama says Ms. Rosalie was one of her biggest supporters and cried at her high school graduation like it was her own daughter walking across the stage. Three years later, Ms. Rosalie saw Mama and me at Wyatt's. This was way before it became our store. She asked my mom how college was going. Mama told her that with Daddy in prison, she couldn't afford daycare, and that Nana wouldn't take care of me because I wasn't her baby, and therefore I wasn't her problem. So Mama was thinking about dropping out. Ms. Rosalie told her to bring me to her house the next day, and that she better not say a word about paying her. She babysat me and later Sikani the whole time Mama was in school. Mama knocks on the door, rattling the screen. Miss Tammy answers in a head wrap, T-shirt, and sweatpants. She unhooks the locks, hollering back, Maverick, Lisa, and Star here, Ma! The living room looks just like it did when Khalil and I played hide-and-seek in it. There's still plastic on the sofa and recliner. If you sit on them too long in the summer while wearing shorts, the plastic nearly glues to your legs. Hey, Tammy girl, Mama says, and they hug long and hard. How you doing? I'm hanging in there. Miss Tammy hugs Daddy, then me. Just hate that this is the reason I had to come home. It's so weird looking at Miss Tammy. She looks the way Khalil's mama, Miss Brenda, would look if Miss Brenda wasn't on crack. A lot like Khalil. Same hazel eyes and dimples. One time Khalil said he wished Miss Tammy was his mama instead, so he could live in New York with her. I used to joke and tell him she didn't have time for him. I wish I never said that. Where you want me to put this lasagna, Tim? Daddy asks her. In the refrigerator if you can find room, she says, as he heads toward the kitchen. Mama said folks brought food all day yesterday. They were still bringing it when I got here last night. Seems like the whole neighborhood has stopped by. That's the garden for you, Mama says. If folks can't do anything else, they'll cook. You ain't ever lied, Miss Tammy motions to the sofa. Y'all have a seat. Mama and I sit down, and Daddy comes back and joins us. Miss Tammy takes the recliner that Miss Rosalie usually sits in. She gives me a sad smile. Star, you know, you sure have grown since the last time I saw you. You and Khalil both grew up so... Her voice cracks. Mama reaches over and pats her knee. Miss Tammy takes a deep breath and smiles at me again. It's good to see you, baby. We know Miss Rosalie gonna tell us she fine, Tam, Daddy says. But how's she really doing? 
We're taking one day at a time. The chemo's working, thankfully. I hope I can convince her to move in with me. That way I can make sure she's getting her prescriptions. She sighs through her nose. I had no idea Mama was struggling like she was. I didn't even know she'd lost her job. You know how she is. Never want to ask for help. What about Miss Brenda? I ask. I have to. Khalil would have. I don't know, Star. Bren, that's complicated. We haven't seen her since we got the news. Don't know where she is. If we do find her, though, I don't know what we'll do. I can help you find a rehab facility near you, Mama says. She's got to want to get clean, though. Miss Tammy nods, and that's the problem. But I think, I think this will either push her to finally get help or push her over the edge. I hope it's the former. Cameron holds his grandma's hand as he leads her into the living room, like she's the queen of the world in a housecoat. She looks thinner, but strong for somebody going through chemo and all of this. A scarf wrapped around her head adds to her majesty, an African queen, and we're blessed to be in her presence. The rest of us stand. Mama hugs Cameron and kisses one of his chubby cheeks. Khalil called him Chipmunk because of them, but he'd check anybody stupid enough to call his little brother fat. Daddy gives Cameron a palm slap that ends in a hug. What's up, man? You okay? Yes, sir. A big, wide smile spreads across Miss Rosalie's face. She holds her arms out, and I walk into the most heartfelt hug I've ever gotten from somebody who's not related to me. There's not any sympathy in it either. Just love and strength. I guess she knows I need some of both. My baby, she says. She pulls back and looks at me, tears brimming in her eyes. Went and grew up on me. She hugs my parents, too. Miss Tammy lets her have the recliner. Miss Rosalie pats the end of the sofa closest to her, so I sit there. She holds my hand and rubs her thumb along the top of it. Mm, she says. Mm. It's like my hand is telling her a story and she's responding. She listens to it for a while, then says, I'm so glad you came over. I've been wanting to talk to you. Yes, ma'am. I say when I'm supposed to. You were the very best friend that boy ever had. This time, I can't say what I'm supposed to. Miss Rosalie, we weren't as close. I don't care, baby, she says. Khalil never had another friend like you. I know that for a fact. I swallow. Yes, ma'am. The police told me you were the one with him when it happened. So she knows. Yes, ma'am. I'm standing on a track, watching the train barrel toward me, and I tense up and wait for the impact, the moment she asks what happened. But the train shifts to another track. Maverick, he wanted to talk to you. He wanted your help, 
Daddy straightens up. For real? Uh-huh. He was selling that stuff. Something leaves me. I mean, I kind of figured it, but to know it's the truth, this hurts. But I swear I want to cuss Khalil out. How could he sell the very stuff that took his mama from him? Did he realize that he was taking somebody else's mama from them? Did he realize that if he does become a hashtag, some people will only see him as a drug dealer? He was so much more than that. But he wanted to stop, Miss Rosalie says. He told me, Grandma, I can't stay in this. Mr. Maverick said it only leads to two things, the grave or prison. And I ain't trying to see either. He respected you, Maverick, a lot. You were the father he never had. I can't explain it. But something leaves Daddy, too. His eyes dim, and he nods. Mama rubs his back. Now, I tried to talk some sense into him, Ms. Rosalie says. But this neighborhood makes young men deaf to the elders. The money part didn't help. He was going around here paying bills, buying sneakers and mess. But I know he remembered the things you told him over the years, Maverick. And that gave me a lot of faith. I keep thinking if only he had another day or... Miss Rosalie covers her trembling lips. Miss Tammy starts for her. But she says, I'm okay, Tam. She looks at me. I'm happy he wasn't alone, but I'm even happier you were with him. That's all I need to know. Don't need details, nothing else. Knowing you were with him is good enough. Like Daddy, all I can do is nod. But as I hold Khalil's grandma's hand, I see the anguish in her eyes. His little brother can't smile anymore. So what if people end up thinking he was a thug and never care? We care. Khalil matters to us, not the stuff he did. Forget everybody else. Mama leans across me and sets an envelope in Miss Rosalie's lap. We want you to have that. Miss Rosalie opens it, and I catch a glimpse of a whole lot of money inside. What in the world? Y'all know I can't take this. Yes, you can, Daddy says. We ain't forgot how you kept Star and Sakani for us. We weren't about to let you be empty-handed. And we know y'all are trying to pay for the funeral, Mama says. Hopefully that'll help. Plus, we're raising money around the neighborhood, too. So don't you worry about a thing. Miss Rosalie wipes a new set of tears from her eyes. I'm gonna pay y'all back every penny. Did we say you had to pay us back? Daddy asks. You focus on getting better, all right? And if you give us any money, we're giving it right back. God's my witness. There are a lot more tears and hugs. Miss Rosalie gives me a freeze cup for the road, red syrup glistening on the top. She always makes them extra sweet. As we leave, I remember how Khalil used to run up to the car when I was about to go. 
the sun shining on the grease lines that separated his cornrows. The glimmer in his eyes would be just as bright. He'd knock on the window, I'd let it down, and he'd say with a snaggletooth grin, See you later, alligator. Back then I'd giggle behind my own snaggle teeth. Now I tear up. Goodbyes hurt the most when the other person's already gone. I imagine him standing at my window and I smile for his sake. After a while, crocodile. Five. On Monday, the day I'm supposed to talk to the detective, I'm crying out of nowhere, hunched over my bed as the iron in my hand spits out steam. Mama takes it before I burn the Williamson crest on my polo. She rubs my shoulder. Let it out, Munch. We have a quiet breakfast at the kitchen table without seven. He spent the night at his mama's house. I pick at my waffles. Just thinking about going into that station with all those cops makes me want to puke. Food would make it worse. After breakfast, we join hands in the living room like we always do, under the framed poster of the ten-point program, and Daddy leads us in prayer. Black Jesus, watch over my babies today, he says. Keep them safe, steer them from wrong, and help them recognize snakes from friends. Give them the wisdom they need to be their own people. Help Seven with this situation at his mama's house and let him know he can always come home. Thank you for Sakani's miraculous sudden healing that just so happened to come after he found out they're having pizza at school today. I peek out at Sakani, whose eyes and mouth are open wide. I smirk and close my eyes. Be with Lisa at the clinic as she helps your people. Help my baby girl get through her situation, Lord. Give her peace of mind and help her speak her truth this afternoon. And lastly, strengthen Ms. Rosalie, Cameron, Tammy, and Brenda as they go through this difficult time. In your precious name I pray. Amen. Amen, the rest of us say. Daddy! Why you put me on the spot like that with black Jesus? Sakani complains. He knows the truth, Daddy says. He wipes crust from the corners of Sakani's eyes and straightens the collar of his polo. I'm trying to help you out, get you some mercy or something, man. Daddy pulls me into a hug. You gonna be all right? I nod into his chest. Yeah. I could stay like this all day. It's one of the few places where 115 doesn't exist and where I can forget about talking to detectives. But Mama says we need to leave before rush hour. Now, don't get it wrong. I can drive. I got my license a week after my 16th birthday. But I can't get a car unless I pay for it myself. I told my parents I don't have time for a job with school and basketball, they said I don't have time for a car then, either. Messed up. It takes 45 minutes to get to school on a good day, and an hour on a slow one. Sakani doesn't have to wear his headphones because Mama doesn't cuss anybody out on the freeway. 
She hums with gospel songs on the radio and says, Give me strength, Lord, give me strength. We get off the freeway into Riverton Hills and pass all these gated neighborhoods. Uncle Carlos lives in one of them. To me, it's so weird to have a gate around a neighborhood. Seriously, are they trying to keep people out or keep people in? If somebody puts a gate around Garden Heights, it'll be a little bit of both. Our school is gated, too, and the campus has new modern buildings with lots of windows and marigolds blooming along the walkways. Mama gets in the carpool lane for the lower school. Sakani, you remembered your iPad? Yes, ma'am. Lunch card? Yes, ma'am. Gym shorts, and you better have gotten the clean ones, too. Yes, Mama, I'm almost nine. Can't you give me a little credit? She smiles. All right, big man. Think you can give me some sugar? Sakani leans over the front seat and kisses her cheek. Love you. Love you, too. And don't forget Seven's bringing you home today. He runs over to some of his friends and blends in with all the other kids in khakis and polos. We get in the carpool lane for my school. All right, Munch, Mama says. Seven's going to bring you to the clinic after school. Then you and I will go to the station. Are you absolutely sure you're up for it? No, but Uncle Carlos promised it'll be okay. I'll do it. Okay. Call me if you don't think you can make it the whole day at school. Hold up, I could have stayed home? Why are you making me come in the first place? Because you need to get out the house, out that neighborhood. I want you to at least try, Star. This will sound mean, but just because Khalil's not living doesn't mean you stop living. You understand, baby? Yeah, I know she's right but it feels wrong. We get to the front of the carpool line. Now, I don't have to ask if you brought some funky-ass gym shorts, do I? She says. I laugh. No. Bye, Mama. Bye, baby. I get out the car. For at least seven hours, I don't have to talk about 115. I don't have to think about Khalil. I just have to be normal star at normal Williamson and have a normal day. That means flipping the switch in my brain. So I'm Williamson star. Williamson star doesn't use slang. If a rapper would say it, she doesn't say it, even if her white friends do. Slang makes them cool. Slang makes her hood. Williamson Star holds her tongue when people piss her off, so nobody will think she's the angry black girl. Williamson Star is approachable. No stank eyes, side eyes, none of that. Williamson Star is non-confrontational. Basically, Williamson Star doesn't give anyone a reason to call her ghetto. I can't stand myself for doing it, but I do it anyway. I sling my backpack over my shoulder. As usual, it matches my J's, the blue and black 11s like Jordan wore in Space Jam. I worked at the store a month to buy them. I hate dressing like everybody else, but the Fresh Prince taught me something. See, 
Will always wore his school uniform jacket inside out so he could be different. I can't wear my uniform inside out, but I can make sure my sneakers are always dope and my backpack always matches them. I go inside and scan the atrium for Maya, Haley, or Chris. I don't see them, but I see that half the kids have tans from spring break. Luckily, I was born with one. Someone covers my eyes. Maya, I know that's you. She snickers and moves her hands. I'm not tall at all, but Maya has to stand on her tiptoes to cover my eyes. And the chick actually wants to play center on the varsity basketball team. She wears her hair in a high bun because she probably thinks it makes her look taller, but nope. What's up, Ms. I-can't-text-anyone-back, she says, and we do our little handshake. It's not complicated like Daddy and King's, but it works for us. I was starting to wonder if you were abducted by aliens. Huh? She holds up her phone. The screen has a brand new crack stretching from corner to corner. Maya's always dropping it. You haven't texted me in two days, Star, she says. Not cool. Oh, I've barely looked at my phone since Khalil got... since the incident. Sorry, I was working at the store. You know how crazy that can get. How was your spring break? Okay, I guess. She munches on some Sour Patch Kids. We visited my great-grandparents in Taipei. I ended up taking a bunch of snapbacks and basketball shorts, so all week long I heard, Why do you dress like a boy? Why do you play a boy sport? Blah, blah, blah. And it was awful when they saw a picture of Ryan. They asked if he was a rapper. I laugh and steal some of her candy. Maya's boyfriend, Ryan, happens to be the only other black kid in 11th grade, and everybody expects us to be together, because apparently when it's two of us, we have to be on some Noah's Ark-type shit and pair up to preserve the blackness of our grade. Lately, I'm super aware of BS like that. We head for the cafeteria. Our table near the vending machines is almost full. There's Haley sitting on top of it, having a heated discussion with curly-haired, dimpled Luke. I think that's foreplay for them. They've liked each other since sixth grade, and if your feelings can survive the awkwardness of middle school, you should stop playing around and go out. Some of the other girls from the team are there, too. Jess, the co-captain, and Britt, the center, who makes Maya look like an aunt. It's kind of stereotypical that we all sit together, but it worked out that way. I mean... Who else will listen to us bitch about swollen knees and understand inside jokes born on the bus after a game? Chris's boys from the basketball team are at the table next to ours, egging Haley and Luke on. Chris isn't there yet, unfortunately, and fortunately. Luke sees me and Maya and reaches his arms toward us. Thank you, two sensible people who can end this discussion. I slide onto the bench beside Jess. She rests her head on my shoulder. They've been at it for 15 minutes. Poor girl. I pat her hair. I have a secret crush on Jess's pixie cut. My neck's not long enough for one, but her hair is perfect. Every strand is where it should be. If I were into girls, 
I would totally date her for her hair, and she would date me for my shoulder. What's it about this time? I ask. Pop-tarts, Britt says. Haley turns to us and points at Luke. This jerk actually said they're better warmed up in the microwave. Ew, I say, instead of my usual ill. And Maya goes, are you serious? I know, right? Says Haley. Jesus Christ, Luke says. I only asked for a dollar to buy one from the machine. You're not wasting my money to destroy a perfectly good Pop-Tart in a microwave. They're supposed to be heated up, he argues. I actually agree with Luke, Jess says. Pop-Tarts are ten times better heated up. I move my shoulder so her head isn't resting on it. We can't be friends anymore. Her mouth drops open and she pouts. Fine, fine, I say, and she rests her head on my shoulder with a wide grin. Total weirdo. I don't know how she'll survive without my shoulder when she graduates in a few months. Anyone who heats up a Pop-Tart should be charged, Haley says. And imprisoned, I say. And forced to eat uncooked Pop-Tarts until they accept how good they are, Maya adds. It is law, Haley finishes, smacking the table like that settles it. You guys have issues, Luke says, hopping off the table. He picks at Haley's hair. I think all that dye seeped into your brain. She swats at him as he leaves. She's added blue streaks to her honey-blonde hair and cut it shoulder length. In fifth grade, she trimmed it with some scissors during a math test because she felt like it. That was the moment I knew she didn't give a shit. I like the blue hills, I say, and the cut. Yeah, Maya grins. It's very Joe Jonas of you. Haley whips her head around so fast, her eyes flashing. Maya and I snicker. So there's a video deep in the depths of YouTube of the three of us lip-syncing to the Jonas Brothers and pretending to play guitars and drums in Haley's bedroom. She decided she was Joe, I was Nick, and Maya was Kevin. I really wanted to be Joe. I secretly loved him the most. But Haley said she should have him. So I let her. I let her have her way a lot. Still do. That's part of being Williamson's star, I guess. I so have to find that video, Jess says. No! Haley goes, sliding off the tabletop. It must never be found. She sits across from us. Never! Never! If I remembered that account's password, I'd delete it. Oh, what was the account's name? Jess asks. Joe Bro Lover or something? Wait, no. Joe Bro Lover. Everybody liked to misspell shit in middle school. I smirk and mumble, close. Haley looks at me, star! Maya and Britt crack up. It's moments like this that I feel normal at Williamson. Despite the guidelines I put on myself, I've still found my group, my table. Okay, then, Haley says. I see how it is, Maya Jonas and Nick's Starry Girl 2000. So, Hales! I say, before she can finish my old screen name. She grins. 
How was your spring break? Haley loses her grin and rolls her eyes. Oh, it was wonderful. Dad and stepmother dearest dragged me and Remy to the house in the Bahamas for family bonding. And bam, that normal feeling gone. I suddenly remember how different I am from most of the kids here. Nobody would have to drag me or my brothers to the Bahamas. We'd swim there if we could. For us, a family vacation is staying at a local hotel with a swimming pool for a weekend. Sounds like my parents, says Britt. Took us to fucking Harry Potter World for the third year in a row. I'm sick of butter beer and corny family photos with wands. Holy shit. Who the fuck complains about going to Harry Potter World? Or Butterbeer? Or Wands? I hope none of them ask about my spring break. They went to Taipei, the Bahamas, Harry Potter World. I stayed in the hood and saw a cop kill my friend. I guess the Bahamas wasn't so bad, Haley says. They wanted us to do family stuff. But we ended up doing our own thing the entire time. You mean you texted me the entire time, Maya says. It was still my own thing. All day, every day, Maya adds, ignoring the time difference. Whatever, Shorty. You know you like talking to me. Oh, I say. That's cool. Really, though, it's not. Haley never texted me during spring break. She barely texts me at all lately. Maybe once a week now, and it used to be every day. Something's changed between us, and neither one of us acknowledges it. We're normal when we're at Williamson, like now. Beyond here, though, we're no longer best friends. Just, I don't know. Plus... She unfollowed my Tumblr. She has no clue that I know. I once posted a picture of Emmett Till, a 14-year-old black boy who was murdered for whistling at a white woman in 1955. His mutilated body didn't look human. Haley texted me immediately after, freaking out. I thought it was because she couldn't believe someone would do that to a kid. No, she couldn't believe... I would reblog such an awful picture. Not long after that, she stopped liking and reblogging my other posts. I looked through my followers list. Aw, Hales was no longer following me. With me living 45 minutes away, Tumblr is supposed to be sacred ground where our friendship is cemented. Unfollowing me is the same as saying, I don't like you anymore. Maybe I'm being sensitive. Or maybe things have changed. Maybe I've changed. For now, I guess we'll keep pretending everything is fine. The first bell rings. On Mondays, AP English is first for me, Haley, and Maya. On the way, they get into this big discussion-turned-argument about NCAA brackets and the Final Four. Haley was born a Notre Dame fan. Maya hates them almost unhealthily. I stay out that discussion. The NBA is more my thing anyway. We turn down the hall, and Chris is standing in the doorway of our class. 
his hands stuffed in pockets and a pair of headphones draped around his neck. He looks straight at me and stretches his arm across the doorway. Haley glances from him to me, back and forth, back and forth. Did something happen with you guys? My pursed lips probably give me away. Yeah, sort of. That douche, Haley says, reminding me why we're friends. She doesn't need details. If someone hurts me in any way, they're automatically on her shit list. It started in fifth grade, two years before Maya came along. We were those crybaby kids who bust out crying at the smallest shit. Me, because of Natasha, and Haley, because she lost her mom to cancer. We rode the waves of grief together. That's why this weirdness between us doesn't make sense. What do you want to do, Star? She asks. I don't know. Before Khalil... I planned to cold shoulder Chris with a sting more powerful than a 90s R&B breakup song. But after Khalil, I'm more like a Taylor Swift song. No shade, I fucks with Tay-Tay, but she doesn't serve like 90s R&B on the angry girlfriend scale. I'm not happy with Chris, yet I miss him. I miss us. I need him so much that I'm willing to forget what he did. That's scary as fuck, too. Someone I've only been with for a year means that much to me? But Chris, he's different. You know what? I'll Beyonce him. Not as powerful as a 90s R&B breakup song, but stronger than a Taylor Swift. Yeah, that'll work. I tell Haley and Maya, I'll handle him. They move so I'm between them like they're my bodyguards, and we go to the door together. Chris bows to us. Ladies? Move! Maya orders. Funny considering how much Chris towers over her. He looks at me with those baby blues. He got a tan over break. I used to tell him he was so pale he looked like a marshmallow. He hated that I compared him to food. I told him that's what he got for calling me caramel. It shut him up. Damn it, though. He's wearing the Space Jam 11s, too. I forgot we decided to wear them the first day back. They look good on him. Jordans are my weakness. Can't help it. I just want to talk to my girl, he claims. I don't know who that is, I say, beyond saying him like a pro. He sighs through his nose. Please, Star, can we at least talk about it? I'm back to Taylor Swift because the please does it. I nod at Haley and Maya. You hurt her and I'll kill you, Haley warns, and she and Maya go into class without me. Chris and I move away from the door. I lean against a locker and fold my arms. I'm listening, I say. A bass-heavy instrumental plays in his headphones, probably one of his beats. I'm sorry for what happened. I should have talked to you first. I cock my head. We did talk about it. A week before, remember? I know. I know, and I heard you. I just wanted to be prepared in case... You could push the right buttons and convince me to change my mind? No. His hands go up in surrender, 
Star, you know, I wouldn't... That's not... I'm sorry, okay? I took it too far. Understatement. The day before Big D's party, Chris and I were in Chris's ridiculously large room. The third floor of his parents' mansion is a suite for him, a perk of being the last born to empty nesters. I try to forget that he has an entire floor as big as my house and hired help that looks like me. Fooling around isn't new for us, and when Chris slipped his hand in my shorts, I didn't think anything of it. Then he got me going, and I really wasn't thinking at all. For real, my thought process went out the door. And right as I was at that moment, he stopped, reached into his pocket, and pulled out a condom. He raised his eyebrows at me, silently asking for an invitation to go all the way. All I could think about was those girls I see walking around Garden Heights, babies propped on their hips. Condom or no condom, shit happens. I went off on Chris. He knew I wasn't ready for that. We already talked about it, and yet he had a condom? He said he wanted to be responsible, but if I said I'm not ready, I'm not ready. I left his house pissed and horny, the absolute worst way to leave. My mom may have been right, though. She once said that after you go there with a guy, it activates all these feelings and you want to do it all the time. Chris and I went far enough that I noticed every single detail about his body now. His cute nostrils that flare when he sighs. His soft brown hair that my fingers love to explore. His gentle lips and his tongue that wets them every so often. The five freckles on his neck that are in the perfect spots for kissing. More than that, I remember the guy who spends almost every night on the phone with me talking about nothing and everything. The one who loves to make me smile. Yeah, he pisses me off sometimes, and I'm sure I piss him off. But we mean something. We actually mean a lot. Fuckity fuck, fuck, fuck. I'm crumbling. Chris, he goes for a low blow and beatboxes an all-too-familiar boom, 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 boom. I pointed him. Don't you dare. Now this is a story all about how my life got flipped, turned upside down. And I'd like to take a minute, just sit right there. I'll tell you how I became the prince of a town called Bel Air. He beatboxes the instrumental and pops his chest and booty to the rhythm. People pass by us laughing. A guy whistles suggestively. Someone shouts, Shake that ass, Bryant! My smile grows before I can stop it. The Fresh Prince isn't just my show. It's our show. Sophomore year, he followed my tumbler, and I followed him back. We knew of each other from school, but we didn't know each other. One Saturday, I reblogged a bunch of Fresh Prince gifts and clips. He liked and reblogged every single one. That Monday morning in the cafeteria, he paid for my Pop-Tarts and grape juice and said, The first Aunt Viv was the best Aunt Viv. It was the beginning of us.
Chris gets the fresh prints, which helps him get me. We once talked about how cool it was that Will remained himself in his new world. I slipped up and said I wish I could be like that at school. Chris said, Why can't you, fresh princess? Ever since, I don't have to decide which star I have to be with him. He likes both. Well, the parts I've shown him. Some things I can't reveal, like Natasha. Once you've seen how broken someone is, it's like seeing them naked. You can't look at them the same anymore. I like the way he looks at me now, as if I'm one of the best things in his life. He's one of the best things in mine, too. I can't lie. We get the why is he dating her stare that usually comes from rich white girls. Sometimes I wonder the same thing. Chris acts like those looks don't exist. When he does stuff like this, rapping and beatboxing in the middle of a busy hall just to make me smile, I forget about those looks, too. He starts the second verse, swaying his shoulders and looking at me. The worst part? His silly butt knows it's working. In West Philadelphia, born and raised. Come on, babe, join in. He grabs my hands. 115 follows Khalil's hands with the flashlight. He orders Khalil to get out with his hands up. He barks at me to put my hands on the dashboard. I kneel beside my dead friend in the middle of the street with my hands raised. A cop, as white as Chris, points a gun at me. As white as Chris. I flinch and snatch away. Chris frowns. Star, you okay? Khalil opens the door. You okay, Star? Pow! There's blood. Too much blood. The second bell rings, jolting me back to normal Williamson, where I'm not normal Star. Chris leans down, his face in front of mine. My tears blur him. Star? It's a few tears, yeah. But I feel exposed. I turn to go to class and Chris grabs my arm. I yank away and whirl on him. His hands go up in surrender. Sorry, I was... I wipe my eyes and walk into the classroom. Chris is right behind me. Haley and Maya shoot him the dirtiest looks. I lower myself into the desk in front of Haley. She squeezes my shoulder. That jackwad. Context of white supremacy. Gus T. Renegade. Uh, this is The Hate You Give. We are still in Chapter 5. Uh, we are not quite at the end. Uh, we're a few pages away from the end of Chapter 5. Uh, that's what we will pick up at uh, for the second audio segment. Uh, folks have thoughts, commentary. If you have a better understanding of what a white ally is based on what we just heard, certainly you should dial in to share the number 641-715-3640, the code 564 nine four three pound press star six one 
if you would like to participate. Number again, 641-715-3640. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. If you would like to join the conversation, but you do not want to use your phone to dial in, you can use the free VOPE line. It is linked at Black Talk Radio Network. If you need the address, it is tiny, T-I-N-Y dot C-C forward slash one race. And that is the number one. Address again, tiny, T-I-N-Y dot C-C forward slash one race and that is the number one once you enter that address look on the left of the page you'll see a link that says free vote line click the link it will open a small window on your screen the first line it's a drop down menu select the number i just gave out which again is six four one seven one five three six four zero the next line, it will ask for a code. That code again, 564943. Final line, it will ask for a name. You can put in a real name, nickname. You can press random keys, whatever you're comfortable with. Once you get all that information entered, click the green button at the bottom. It will connect you to the live broadcast. You should be able to hear us. Same procedure if you would like to participate. Uh, you will see the Dial pad on your screen, press star six one. I will get your hand from the switchboard and you can join the discussion. Uh, go ahead, share the broadcast. You can tweet it, share it on social media. Uh, if you think people would benefit from hearing the discussion on the book this evening, uh, certainly if we have any listeners, if we have educators who've worked with this book, you know how uh, this book is taught in a classroom setting, that would be great to hear about. If we have any parents where you had uh, an offspring who had to read this book for school, certainly if we have any black uh, students, any black children who've had to read this book for school, or if you read it for leisure, would be great to hear from you. Please chime in. And or if we have uh, just any non-white listeners, period, who think that this is a constructive text for young black students to read, I would definitely uh, like to hear your analysis of the text. Uh, with that, we'll get to the first few folks who dialed in with a hand up. If you have commentary you would like to share, feel free. Have you heard? Please first. Thank you. Um, this is Red in Nevada. Um, I came in a little late, but I did catch like the end part of it. Um, the in the right before you know we started the commentary, I thought the whole part about the the sexual contact or whatever that was nauseating. I, I don't. It was. It was. I definitely feel like it's. It was definitely too much. I don't think a child should actually a young adult should actually read this especially in this context, but I feel like um, it definitely seems, I, I guess the maybe one good thing that I can um, draw from this part or from what I heard was that at least uh, the author is somewhat capturing the fake um, 
I guess, I don't know, fakeness of the so-called white friends when they, uh, as far as with Star and the quote-unquote relationship. But um, I, I definitely thought that it was, and then um, I guess the other only other thing that um, I wanted to mention, the part where uh, Star says that he likes, how much he likes, uh, Chris likes her, but she's only shown one side of her like she he said I'm sorry um she was commenting that how he likes both stars but she's only shown him one which kind of doesn't make sense but I I, I still I guess I kind of still like that um part and uh the last thing I I I was a little I don't I don't know confused I don't I don't know how um like the transition, it took me a little while to, I don't want to say a little while, but it, it, it took a few seconds to kind of like, I guess, picture um, Star having to, having like these like flashbacks of um, PTSD. But I, I definitely, I, I can appreciate that if nothing else. Um, and I'll, I'll, with that, I'll meet my line. Thank you. Appreciate that, Red. Uh, Thomas in New York, did you have commentary, sir? The hate I have for this book. Thank you, Gus. Good evening. Good evening to all the callers. Red, Nevada. Um, oh, I hate this book, Gus. Oh, man. Um, that's no offense to you, Gus. I know you didn't write it here. But um, you go from frozen Kool-Aid and now latest to sour patches and pop parts. I was like, this is just so, it's so cliche-ish, you know. Um, the, the summer vacation of her white friends compared to hers, the, the problems, they, white people problems compared to black people problems. They, the father they made into the angry black man. Carlos was the rational one. I think they then they went on to dehumanize the father, made him an ex-con thug who, you know, got more in-depth in his street things and you know, been around dead people, you know, just a, a no good. Don't listen to him. You know, he's the, he's the person she shouldn't be listening to. It's the good Carlos. He always keeps his promises. But then you go from that to, now listen, if my daughter was two of her friends shot right in front of her, I would be gay to me. I mean, it, it just doesn't seem like a logical choice, but you know, to each his own, um, you know, it seems like he also has a son, and I'm sure, um, you know, he's persuaded to, you know, has a lot of persuasion as well in that area. I'll just say, um, I hate the term natural team. I hate when black people use that term um, because it humanizes white people, and, um, you know, I mean, we can still team even though we are, black, you know, blind, melanated. So, um, yeah, I just hate that term. It kind of makes them like they're us, and, you know, I, I, I don't even like using it. Um, she goes on to say white people with their perfect hair strands and how she could run her hair through um, her white boyfriend's um, brown soft hair, and he's tall, white, and handsome type, you know, blue eyes looking at her, and, you know, she even made reference to the, the guy who was killed um, having hazel eyes, you know. So she's, she's um, pulling out traits that uh, most black people don't have. 
as um what what she deems as being attractive to. And I think that um that shows um you know, she also highlighted light skin as well. I think uh, high yellow or something to that effect was used, which is you know, uh, I know it's descriptive, it's a book, but you know, it's one of those terms. Um, and that soft porn part, you know, Tariq Nasheed did a show uh, where he um, highlighted several books. It's a huge industry of these black women who write books about um, having sex with these rich white men. And I think this book is probably one of those that fit into that category, kind of. Um, I mean, um, they even have on boat tours, he, he, he put the flyer on the show, you know, so the boat tours that these authors of these books are, are having um, cruises where they buy out the whole cruise, you know, and, and they're there with the, these black women with these rich white men. And, it's, um, and um, I mean, and, and the last thing I wanted to say is um, she talks about um, the night they were going to go all the way and, you know, he was getting her wet and all of this stuff. And then um, she makes a reference like um, she doesn't want to be like one of those black girls down in the hood pushing the baby stroller at a young age, which I get. But at the same time, this dude got a woman the size of her house and he got a butler and a black help. I mean, so um, you wouldn't be like one of those chicks pushing those strollers around the hood. I need my line. Thank you. Chris could be a deadbeat dad. Never know. Uh, other folks who dialed in with a hand up, did you all have commentary? Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, greetings, everyone. Uh, where do I start? Where do I start? Uh, well, what's the uh, the most dominant thing that's on my uh, table of thoughts? is uh well first ask the question uh when you were were you playing excerpts from her in a the real life author in a in a, a interview in the beginning yes sir uh, but that was angie thomas the author of the book we are reading uh from february right at the end of february of this year okay uh just in case because you're dealing with a uh ignorant uh victim of racism i, I made miss say something uh that's not correct but uh what comes to my mind is the the uh mistake of a non-white especially a non-white black parent or parents that places their offspring as a child of course it's a child uh in an environment under under the global system of racist white supremacy where white people are dominant are dominant and just kind of like leave them there with no explanation at all no uh because i i i understand that education is not limited to a building and it should constantly go on therefore with the idea in mind wherever you put that person they can be in a better chance of being prepared for whatever you know or what they may be confronted with and have the uh discernibility to be able to uh to uh uh know when they're seeing something that's constructive and or to their best interest uh and it's obvious to me that 
a lot of non-white victims of racist white, white supremacy, especially people who are classified as black, make that mistake over and over and over. And from that, although this book is a fiction book, I can see where it has some real life uh, analogies and thoughts uh, that are, you know, just a just a huge conglomerate of of conflict, conflicting thoughts uh, as far as that concerned. It's, like I said, especially when you you leave a a child in the presence of crafty, cunning, deceitful white people. It doesn't matter if they're ten years old or 70 years old, they are, they are very cunning in a deceitful manner, in a, in a destructive manner. And it, 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 can, it has shown to be evidence that it provides a lot of confusion in that person. And basically I said that to say that from what I'm hearing in the readings that it's being displayed it's being displayed from that standpoint. It's not a bad idea to share the book. Uh, uh, for if, if what I'm saying makes sense and I think it makes sense to me, I don't know if it makes sense to anybody else, but from that standpoint, it would make sense to, to, uh, circulate, uh, this, uh, literature and, and with that in mind, uh, it's some things, and once again, this is my, my thoughts, it's some things that, that's within that book with the different personalities that she has that kind of like tells, it, it, it may tell me, tell me about the person uh, herself. Uh, and it's not unusual with the, uh, for instance, with the father, and I heard uh, Mr. Thomas say, that uh, the quote-unquote angry black man, in other words, what it's doing is kind of like making fun of it. Uh, basically, this person represents someone who is at least having some thought about solving the problem of racism, white supremacy, or speaking on it. Uh, and, and in turn, it's, it's being kind of like put down in a sense, you know, as far as that concerned, especially with the idea of her having a having a, a, a uh, intimate relationship with a white person, it may not it may not have gotten to actual physical sex. It's concerned, but it definitely intimacy is bad enough for me. As far as that concerned, with a white person, uh, I kind of like don't see it no different than actually the physical uh, uh, aftermath. As far as that's concerned, uh, unless somebody can tell me different. Uh, so these are some of the things that I observed in it, and uh, uh, I'll let it go uh, for right now and, and participate in some some later process of it. But those those are just some thoughts, and you know somebody can tell you know you know uh, based on what I shared, you know help me out or, or basically uh, if they can if they seen some of the same things you know express it. That's it. Uh, appreciate that, retired firefighter. Uh, other folks that we have not heard from, if you have commentary, line should be open. Proceed. Can I be heard? Yes. Uh, let's, let's get uh, the caller uh, 2730, and then we'll get Mr. Demery 4. 
Oh, okay, thanks. Uh, this is Jay from St. Louis. Uh, just wanted to offer some comments. Wanted to uh, give a tip of my hat to uh, Thomas from New York. That was a great addition, that industry of plantation fiction. I think it really helps frame uh, this book and it, the approach that the narrator takes or the main character takes to the, the white boyfriend. Um, uh, regarding the father, uh, he's definitely seen as illegitimate illegitimate um, uh, by the rest of the family, and it's very, very clear. Um, I think they try to uh, paint him outside of that moral framework by talking about his time missing from the family. It's almost as if uh, it was mentioned with a tone that it was a debt that can never be repaid. So I thought that was interesting to pay attention to. Um, the conversations between the black family was interesting because it reminded me of Zora Neale Hurston's writing. Uh, really, really like obvious, stereotypical black English between pretty stereotypical characters for uh, what white society produces for us. Um, and I also wanted to point out that uh, the mother told the main character that pretty much she told her that Khalil deserved to die, so you should mourn faster. Um, so I thought that was important to keep in mind as she's entering this white space, which ultimately makes her feel more comfortable. Um, and lastly, I wanted to point out uh, how, even though she did talk about um, certain things, she did ultimately mention that, try to like intimate that white people are loyal, even though they have problems. And when she was talking about her friend, she kept saying that uh, she was very loyal. So I thought that was um, important to mention. Uh, thanks. <clears throat> Debt that can never be repaid uh, with regards to Maverick. Hmm. Poignant. Uh, Mr. Demery Ford, thank you for your patience, sir. Yes, Maverick. Yes, sir. Okay, greetings, Gus. Uh, greetings to the other callers, listeners. You know, excellent uh, uh, commentary so far. And uh, I got something from everyone's... Uh, uh, contribution i think um like the firefighter was saying uh the book can be constructive if you look at you know every angle of it you know if we're looking at it from the uh protagonist uh so with me what stands out is the, the mental health issue i mean i can't help but see it just blazing out there it's deteriorating too because her mind is wandering she has nightmares from the beginning of the reading she was having a nightmare from uh, natasha the girl that was killed when she was uh, 10 years old so several years later she still has symptoms from that fits of crying she's throwing up uh there's no emphasis on uh victim ag advocating you know, advocacy, uh, generational trauma. It's a lot of white identification, you know, going on here. So uh, it indicates confusion. And then if you look at the relatives, the mother, father, siblings, all suffering from trauma, you know, from one incident. And then actually no one's getting any help. The only help looked like uh, they're asking uh, help from Black Jesus in 
uh, Big Mav's prayer, you know, where he quotes to keep them safe and steer them from wrong and help them recognize snakes from friends. Uh, so I just thought that that's probably uh, especially applicable to uh, Star when it comes to her white friends, help her to recognize races from friends. And uh, I do see colorism when they mention Uncle Carlos is uh, light skinned. And Uncle Carlos uh, and Big uh, Mav do not get along. And one is like an OG, an old gangster, or a prior gang leader, but he's changed his ways of upstanding citizen now, but what you you never live down your past, I guess. And Uncle Carlos, I'm going to reserve my uh, thoughts on him, but I'm starting to believe that he understands what he's doing when he's influencing his sister to bring in um, the young lady for questioning by the police without legal representation. That's uh, anybody that's been listening to the cows for any amount of time know that if you know anybody that's going to be questioned by the police, do not uh, show up without any legal representation. That's just a setup. And it just brings about this pattern where it is to demean and discredit uh, non-white people who are victim and witnesses uh, so that you can be able to show a reason why a non-white or black person is not worthy of life itself. And so <clears throat> uh, the answer to your question about uh, an ally with Chris, it just, you know, I could be rolling on the floor laughing. My An image of a white boy with his uh, cap turned backwards, a large T-shirt, and he's bebopping to Will Smith, Fresh Prince, and pretending to be black. <laughs> and he's rich. And she thinks that all that is someone that gets it and is on her side. That's that's really sad. That's uh, white validation and... Uh, Worst case I ever seen. I'm mute my line on that, Gus. Uh, uh, thanks for taking the call. He said worst case he's ever seen. Wow. Uh, anybody else that has a hand up that we've not heard from at all? Anybody else who has a hand up who had commentary? Hello? Yes, ma'am. Uh, hi. Thank you so much for taking my call. Um, good evening, everyone. I listened to the five-week broadcast before I started listening to this one, of course, today. And I just, I don't, I guess I don't understand how, I guess people don't pay attention to what their kids are doing in school because I don't understand why more black people aren't outraged that their children have to read this book. Um, I'm not necessarily saying it's a good or bad book, but the images are so powerful, and I think to be through a filter of mostly white people, especially white women, because that's who's in public school teaching, is somewhat dangerous. Um, number two, I guess you talked about the 
the not forgetting the past. I thought that was a good part. But the black person, their their past isn't forget isn't forgotten or forgiven. While at the school, the young lady, the young white girl, unfriended her, or whatever she did. But it was also given because she was like, that's why she's my friend, because she's standing up for me. And so you see how a white person, they can be forgiven instantly. Past is erased. You're doing the right thing now. You're on my side or whatever. Um, and also, I was looking online because you asked about teachers. There's some white lady in Norway, and she picked this book. And I'm assuming most of her children, most of her students look like her. And I'm assuming she's just, I mean, I don't know her. I haven't met her. But, you know, being from Norway, that she is not of the melanin persuasion, but she has a lesson plan, and I guess it's somewhat popular because her website is the top top 50 teacher websites for seriously dedicated educators, and she has a lesson plan for this book, so I don't know if you would necessarily want to talk to her per se. She might be an interesting guest, especially with an international white perspective on the teaching of this book because I, I would think that that's strange. All the, all the books to pick, she picked. I know it, I guess it was popular, but I'm guessing that most of her students don't look like her. So, I mean, don't most of her students don't look like the characters in this book. So I thought that was very interesting. But she has a lesson plan and everything. I'll send you the link. Thank awesome. You. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. Awesome research. Please send it to me and we'll see if we can get her on the broadcast. I'd love to check out her lesson plan that in particular for all the reasons that you uh, pointed out that would be fascinating. Uh, other folks, if you have commentary, please don't wait till the last minute because we do have the second uh, audio segment to get through. I, I do want to remind folks, I guess, first, before I get my comments in Maverick, the author, uh, Angie Thomas, she said in the interview I played last week, that Maverick is her favorite character. So I guess keep that in mind as we proceed to the book. Do we think, you know, hey, this is somebody that you would identify with. And in fact, this is the person who the very author says is her favorite character. Keep that in mind as we proceed. I'm going to start my comments in this manner. Last week when I was uh, looking at the description for the first week segment of this book, there's a portion that said that this book debuted as the at the top spot on the New York Times bestseller list for young adult novels. And I thought that was, you know, a typo at first. I was like, oh man, you know, Gus, you you are slipping. You must have messed up. But I stopped because that was a direct quote from an article uh, that yes, this book debuted. And they said it again at the audio clip that we started. That in the system of racism, white supremacy, say there are no coincidences. You do not have a book written by a black author dealing with racism debut at the New York Times number one spot and think that that is coincidence. John Patash talked about how a major aspect of the Pro program was manipulation of newspapers. A portion of that includes some books are popular, some books are not popular. Uh, We can take that a lot of different ways in terms of how things get promoted. But this book was not only did it debut at the top spot, number one, it stayed there for 38 weeks. That's almost an entire year. That is generally unheard of, uh, particularly for a black author, a black female author at that and a young adult novel. 
I am postulating that that is not coincidence. And in fact, I'm even postulating this could be a ghost written book. I'm just speculating could be a theory. I could be totally wrong, but I think there are enough. I think someone in their commentary mentioned that there is a lot of cliche uh, Negro dialect reminded them of, I think, Zora Neale Hurston, uh, the reliance on Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. I think a caller last week uh, eloquently dis, uh, articulated his disgust uh, about that being uh, a main theme of how this author is relating and how she identifies. And even this week, it seems like she has picked up some life les lessons uh, and has a code about how she functions based on the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and saying that that is unusual in his experience. It tends to be white people uh, who are relating black people to that show, not black people relating themselves to that show, which, and I would say that's true to my experience as well. I was not a fan of that. That's not even the point. I think this could be ghost written and, uh, and, or whites had a major hand. I think it's always super important to keep in mind. These books get edited. We talked about that with France Fanon. Uh, I, <laughs> This has gargantuan fingerprints of racist man, racist woman all over the book. If they did not write it themselves and just say, we will pick out, you know, a victim of racism, white supremacy and say, yes, you say you wrote it. We'll give you all the accolades, a lot of money and, you know, whatever the case may be. I could be completely wrong. I just think that that's something to think about. Getting to the commentary. Uh, let's see. The whole... Uh, dialogue between Maverick and Uncle Carlos, where he worked. This is a black enforcement official. Uh, I'm stunned that we didn't have commentary from Thomas <laughs> blasting Uncle Carlos. And then black enforcement official, maybe he's even uh, now been accepted as white. Uh, but this sticking up for uh, 115, this race soldier who killed a black male uh, previously, I mean, that's just not something I would be interested in reading, uh, that this is, you know, going to be my leisure time activity or having to read this uh, for school, uh, having black people or anyone really uh, sticking up for white people and humanizing white killers. Uh, we get that all the time. Uh, that is not anything. And particularly for a child, I wouldn't I just it's not something that would appeal to me uh, to want to read. Um and particularly the way that this whole dialogue goes where uh, Uncle Carlos and Maverick are getting into an argument. And uh, I think a lot of us can empathize with this conversation where you're the one that's bringing up racism, white supremacy, or pointing out that you think racism is happening. And others, non-white people, sometimes family, friends, why are you always bringing up race? Why are you trying to make it about race and chiding you? Certainly, that is authentic. I that, have been in that position many, many times. But the same thing that I said last week, symbolism is not a replacement for codification. Uh, some people may be really impressed and thrilled that she has references to the Black Panther Party and the 10-point program. They may, and P.E.P. Newton specifically, right? Some people may be thrilled about that. That does nothing for me. Codification trumps symbolism. Logic, in fact, let me even replace. Logic is greater than symbolism. I said last week, if Maverick had just said, I oppose, quote unquote, interracial relationship, you can even take the quotes away, because I suspect that Chris could be racist. That's just logic. That's great. That's way better than 
all the ranting that went on last week that's emotion that's not connected to logic. A lot of that happened this week as well. And in my view, Maverick just gets shut down. He gets dismissed. Like all of his, he's the only person there who has logical suspicion about racism and what's going to happen with the enforcement officials. He just gets drowned out. It's just, eh, you know, you're just making it about race and wife has the final say. She shushes him. We're going to go on down on Monday and that is final. The decision has been made. Maverick is, you know, hushed. And, and I just, I mean, if, if that's what we're going to, if this is the black lives matter novel, where the only black character at this point who has correct, logical, appropriate, this uh, suspicion about racism is shushed. Oh man. (laughs) uh, Well, that's just the same old, same old. That's not indicative of any radical shift uh, or any change. And it, to me, it didn't even seem like that got pointed out as man, that's, that's messed up for the author's favorite character. Uh, Next. Uh, Let's see. I am, I think I said last week, I'm totally done with all of the Negro uh, conflict trauma type movies, books. I'm not interested in hearing any more stories about black crackheads and crack addicts. We have had like, decades of that and that's another thing uh white fingerprints in my addition uh in my opinion i'm not interested in any of that and i mean i would not oh my gosh i can't imagine being like can you imagine being 15 and reading this book in class much less i don't know i was in class what they call the gifted or tracking system where a lot of the classes that i had english classes i was the only black person in the class can you imagine reading this book in a class full of oh my god oh anyway uh do, do, do. Continuing, uh, I did appreciate my one non-critical comment. The when they go to Khalil's uh, family's house to commiserate, mourn with them, and Star is holding uh, Miss Rosalind's hand, uh, Miss Rosalie's hand, excuse me, and she says, "Like my hand is telling her a story," and she's responding. She listens to it for a while and then says, "I'm glad you came over. Uh, thought that was great. Touch is very important. That." connect those connections get uh, disrupted in the system of white supremacy uh the symbolism of black jesus didn't uh does nothing for me in the book i guess people can comment if you think that's at least moving in the direction or hinting at what some might call african spirituality or something other than the religion of white supremacy to me this just seems like very uh thinly coded religion of white supremacy uh that it's still the same thing that we've just put a little bit of uh a tan on it if you will uh to say that it's been blackened but no it's just the religion of white supremacy i think um when star is kind of given her breakdown of going to the white school and the things that she does there the changes in her behavior what some might call code switching uh, that she holds her tongue when people piss her off so nobody will think she's the angry black girl. Williamson Star is approachable, no stank eyes. Uh, Williamson Star is non-confrontational. Williamson Star doesn't give anyone a reason to call her ghetto. Referring to yourself in the third person in that manner uh, is noteworthy. Also, I think uh, that is a fallacy. That is, in my view, part of our not understanding white supremacy racism. You can do all of these things and still be 
terrorized by racist in fact that's what's going to happen you can do all of those things and you're still going to be mistreated guaranteed and i would be remiss mr fuller certainly tells us all the time you are the ghetto regardless of what is in your bank account what your dialect is how many degrees you have you are the ghetto if you're classified as black in the system of white supremacy uh the jordans i think we talked about that last week uh, nike is man they, uh, they should have cut her a check for all of the uh advertising that she's doing uh and the show off i thought that as well the show offism uh of the matching backpack and sneakers i think that's something that's kind of in a cliche way associated with black people uh the show offism in the system of racism white supremacy to deflect from how we're being traumatized um let's see the se- oh my goodness the segment before we even got to chris before we even got to chris talk about sexual terrorism When she's at the lunch table and she says, uh, I slide onto the bench beside Jess. She rests her head on my shoulder. They've been at it for 15 minutes. Poor girl, I pat her hair. I have a secret crush on Jess's pixie cut. I didn't even know what a pixie cut was. I had to uh, look online. You have to forgive Gus's ignorance. Uh, But a pixie cut, I guess, for people who, if you have seen the Netflix show House of Cards, uh, the main uh, character, white woman, who was formerly with Kevin Spacey, she has uh, what's called a pixie cut, and they have other folks who uh, you probably recognize it. But yeah, I, I, <laughs> continuing, Jess's pixie cut. My neck's not long enough for one, but her hair is perfect. Let me do my whoop, 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 rewind. <laughs> um, uh, my neck's not long enough for one, but her hair is perfect. Every strand is where it should be. I think this popular is like really popular with black females, black girls, black girls, black girls. If I went, if I were into girls, I would totally date her for her hair. I'm going to just stop right there. Now, that's one that could be a victim of racism, white supremacy, who is very white identified. There are many, 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 many victims of racism who qualify in that category. You can put Gus T. Renegade in that category as well. Or that could be racist man, racist woman, their fingerprint, their signature in this text, which I'm submitting the whole thing could be either or. How in the world is this something that, oh, people just missed that line. Nobody had any thought about that. Maybe that's cool in the LGBT 21st century but am i supposed to applaud a black girl having a crush on a suspected racist white teen and her perfect white hair this is the black lives matter text of 2017 uh continuing all the i don't even have to get into what i view as the softcore porn accurately identified great comparison with all of the literature and it's tons of it more coming Uh, of what they call interracial romance. In my opinion, if this is supposed to, this was motivated by Oscar Grant's murder and we pause on the death of a black male to have softcore porn 
with a white guy who looks who they emphasize looks just like the shooter gun phallus gun phallus looks just like the shooter and we got to pause for that all i need to know uh, i think this is an excellent study particularly if you have a lot of black people who think that this book is great and constructive and something that black children should have that lets me know a lot about why i play the sound clip consistently if anyone is ignorant about racism it is black people unless i am way off in my assessment of this book and racism white supremacy in general i will reach out to miss thomas to see if we could have her as a guest on the program we'll see what happens anybody have any thoughts about that line i'm gonna read the the paragraph one more time I slide onto the bench beside Jess. She rests her head on my shoulder. They've been at it for 15 minutes. Poor girl, I pat her hair. I have a secret crush on Jess's pixie cut. My neck's not long enough for one, but her hair is perfect. Every strand is where it should be. If I were into girls, I would totally date her for her hair any thoughts on that paragraph yes sir it uh it tells me about uh the point of worshiping white people it's it's like a worship uh uh that's the best way i can describe it uh with uh just about every sentence that comes out in that paragraph it basically places uh, white people in a position of uh, of uh, godlike, quote unquote. Yeah. To answer your question. <laughs> Hello. Yes, ma'am. Hi. Thanks so much for taking my call again. Um. Yes. I agree with what you said, and also, when you go further, she would date me for my shoulders. I mean, I don't know women who are known for their shoulders. I know men, but, oh, he has such great shoulders. So, to me, the masculinization of black women comes into play again. And I guess as a personal, I thought back, because I went to a predominantly white high school, and there was this white girl. She didn't look like a white girl, but she was straightening her hair all of a sudden. Everybody thought she was hot, even the black people. And I always thought that that was strange. So I guess there's something in the hair. I don't know. <laughs> Any, if Can I, I add something? Oh. Uh, well, I'm finished. Go ahead. Just let me uh, check really quick, retired firefighter. Any of the other folks uh, who, uh, if you already spoke, if, if you had comments on that paragraph or if you had any other comments you wanted to get in, uh, if not, then we'll get retired firefighter. But any of the other folks who dialed in, uh, did you have comments on that paragraph or other thought to share? I had a comment. Yes, sir. I, I wanted to add some support to your uh your hunch here that the white supremacist signature is all over this work. I heard a line that we all passed up too. I don't know if anybody else heard it, but it, but it said that uh, Pop-Tarts and grape juice were the beginning of us. Um, I cannot imagine. Um, I, I just, either way it's horrific, whether a non-white person or a white person wrote it. 
I just wanted to add that to your hunch that this has a huge fingerprint on it. Oh, is that it? Huge fingerprint? Is that it? Yeah, yeah. I just wanted to add something to support that point. Oh, okay. Appreciate that. Uh, I also want to get a quick word in before retired firefighter, or if anybody else, uh, I do just want to make sure I get a quick word in. The food mentions in this book are horrible. <laughs> Grape juice and Pop-Tarts and Cheetos, like every time it is just the worst food. I think that's important because it's a book marketed to black people. I said the author is like morbid obese. Uh, and I'm not, that's a, this is not fat shaming. I'm not calling her any names. I have dealt with being overweight as well. Like that's really serious. We talked about black mental health, super serious diet, exercise, very, very important. And all of the food that's mentioned uh, in this book is hard. That's exactly how you will end up with having all kinds of health problems that exacerbate mental health problems. Do we have any other folks who had commentary? If not, we'll get retired firefighter. Right on. Retired firefighter. Yes, sir. Uh, I would say, and we're not even, I don't, and correct me if I'm wrong, are we halfway, are we anywhere close to being halfway finished with this book? Not even close. Right. Uh, I would say, based on what I have heard so far, uh, with the advent of of uh, violence, and violence specifically, uh, that exists in the area where in the book where the non-white people are at, uh, sex, uh, the whole uh, perception of La La Land with white people, with this book in the hands of a white person, perceivably, you know, uh, for the most part, because uh, white females uh, uh, dominate the public school system, or or even a non-white or confused non-white person, I can see where this book can cause a lot of a lot of uh, confusion uh to uh young impressionable uh influential uh, uh black people uh uh it's not unusual for uh people to have a book that they say well this book right here uh is the book that uh motivated me or influenced me into a constructive direction well, I can see this book doing that. I can see where we're not even halfway finished with it. Can actually can really influence a, a, a young person, and, and in my opinion, in a, in a very uh, negative uh, 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 position, uh, self, uh, a lack of self-respect position. That's what I had to say. Thank you. Let's ask this. Last week, I appreciate your commentary, uh, retired firefighter. Last week, I raised the issue. Maybe I was being approved. Maybe I still am. I raised the issue. I said, this is a young adult novel. All the profanity that has continued this week, the narcotics, the violence. Uh, this week, we got uh, <laughs> thinly veiled pornography. I do not think this is a young adult novel. I do not think uh, that this is representative of the types of books and the content in the types of books that are typically listed as young adult novels. Uh, I think this 
at least in my view, seems to be particularly sleazy and sleazy in a stereotypical Negro way because this is what is expected of black people. This is what black people do. This is what nigger children do. So, of course, it's no problem for them to read this. I think whites would be appalled. I am not stunned at all that you had a school in Texas that banned this book. In me, that is logic. I think whites would be furious if they had a book like this that was predominantly white characters and they were on opioids uh, and doing all their crazy antics and whatever the case. They would be furious if this was marketed to white children. But this is cool because this is supposed to be cool for nigger children. Uh, going back to my question from last week, given I knew now that we got Chris in the book and the pornography that we heard this is young adult novel. Folks think that this is, you know, this content is 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 on par with what you would expect from young adult uh, fiction literature or no. Not in no classroom. No. Mm -mm. Any other thoughts, folks think that, you know, this is just keeping up with the time. Yeah. Go ahead, Thomas, in New York. Yeah. Um, you know, everything was cool until they added the white dude. That, that, that kind of messed me up there. Um, however, I don't see too much of a difference between this and a lot of the um, programming that um, kids are, you know, watching. But this was, um, the way this is being written, I don't like. Um and um, one of my daughters does have to read this for school. And, um, you know, so she says she hasn't started yet. And um, I plan on having a lot of questions about this. Um, but, I mean, they, they, they already um, know my stance on everything. So, but um, I do want to say the point you made about um, this could be a ghostwriter. Um, you know, that's an excellent point. This, a lot of things that's happening in here is just so cliche. And it's, it's so, um, to me, simple. You know, now ladies and frozen, you know, it's just like every black, you know, it just doesn't feel like a black person wrote it. And um, I, I just don't know, you know, that, that kind of, now I'm going to be listening to it with a suspicion, like, let me find something that seems off, you know? Um, but yeah, I really hate this book. I mute my mind. The hate you give Thomas, the hate you give, uh, yes, sir. 30 seconds. Uh, anybody have a final yes, comment? Yes, sir. May I be heard? Okay. Yeah. I didn't want to say anything about the, um, uh, gender, uh, loving little thing there. I didn't, you know, I know that women may lay their show, uh, head on one another's shoulder, hold hands, or, uh, maybe even dance together. But, you know, I think, uh, sitting there thinking about getting with, uh, someone of, you know, your identical sex, I, I don't think a lot of young women go through that. That looks like something that they may be trying to push onto the younger generation like that is normal. 
because you see it in the media and it's kind of like you're inundated with it and all the newer movies, you know, it's got instances like that. So I think it's an idea that they're trying to push. I mute my line. Grand. We will get to the second audio segment. Uh, great observations from everyone. If you have additional comments, just make a note and we'll have time. Once the second audio segment concludes, we are in chapter five. We're picking up on the paragraph. Nobody mentioned Khalil at school today. I hate to admit it because it's like throwing him the middle finger. That's what we're picking up at in chapter five. Angie Thomas, the hate you give context of white supremacy. Nobody mentioned Khalil at school today. I hate to admit it because it's like throwing him the middle finger, but I'm relieved. Since basketball season is over, I leave when everybody else does. Probably for the first time in my life, I wish it wasn't the end of the day. I'm that much closer to talking to the cops. Haley and I trek across the parking lot arm in arm. Maya has a driver to pick her up. Haley has her own car, and I have a brother with a car. The two of us always end up walking out together. Are you absolutely sure you don't want me to kick Chris's ass? Haley asks. I told her and Maya about Condom Gate, and as far as they're concerned, Chris is eternally banished to asshole land. Yes, I say for the hundredth time, you're violent, Hales. When it comes to my friends, possibly. Seriously, though, why would he even? God, boys in their fucking sex drive. I snort. Is that why you and Luke haven't gotten together? She lightly elbows me. Shut up. I laugh. Why won't you admit you like him? What makes you think I like him? Really, Haley? Whatever, Star. This isn't about me. This is about you and your sex-driven boyfriend. He's not sex-driven, I say. Then what do you call it? He was horny at that moment. Same thing. I try to keep a straight face, and she does too, but soon we're cracking up. God, it feels good to be normal, Star and Haley. Has me wondering if I imagined a change. We part at the halfway point to Haley's car and Seven's. The ass-kicking offer is still on the table, she calls to me. Bye, Haley. I walk off, rubbing my arms. Spring has decided to go through an identity crisis and get chilly on me. A few feet away, Seven keeps a hand on his car as he talks to his girlfriend, Layla. Him and that damn Mustang. He touches it more than he touches Layla. She obviously doesn't care. She plays with the dreadlock near his face that isn't pulled into his ponytail. I roll worthy. Some girls do too much. Can't she play with all them curls on her own head? Honestly, though, I don't have a problem with Layla. She's a geek like Seven, smart enough for Harvard, but Howard-bound, and real sweet. She's one of the four black girls in the senior class. And if Seven just wants to date black girls, he picked a great one. I walk up to them and go, Hem, hem! Seven keeps his eyes on Layla. Go sign Sakani out. Can't, 
I lie. Mama didn't put me on the list. Yes, she did. Go. I fold my arms. I am not walking halfway across campus to get him and halfway back. We can get him when we're leaving. He side-eyes me. But I'm too tired for all that, and it's cold. Seven kisses Layla and goes around to the driver's side. Acting like that's a long walk, he mumbles. Acting like we can't get him when we're leaving, I say, and hop in. He starts the car. This nice mix Chris made of Kanye and my other future husband, J. Cole, plays from Seven's iPod dock. He maneuvers through the parking lot traffic to Sakani School. Seven signs him out of his after-school program, and we leave. I'm hungry, Sakani whines, not even five minutes out the parking lot. Didn't they give you a snack in after-school? Seven asks. So? I'm still hungry. Greedy butt, Seven says, and Sakani kicks the back of his seat. Seven laughs. Okay, okay. Ma asked me to bring some food to the clinic anyway. I'll get you something, too. He looks at Sakani in the rearview mirror. Is that cool? Seven freezes. He turns Chris's mix off and slows down. What you turn the music off for? Sakani asks. Shut up. Seven hisses. We stop at a red light. A Riverton Hills patrol car pulls up beside us. Seven straightens up and stares ahead, barely blinking and gripping the steering wheel. His eyes move a little like he wants to look at the cop car. He swallows hard. Come on, light, he prays. Come on. I stare ahead and pray for the light to change, too. It finally turns green and Seven lets the patrol car go first. His shoulders don't relax until we get on the freeway. Mine neither. We stop at this Chinese restaurant Mama loves and get food for all of us. She wants me to eat before I talk to the detectives. In Garden Heights, kids play in the streets. Sakani presses his face against my window and watches them. He won't play with them, though. Last time he played with some neighborhood kids, they called him White Boy because he goes to Williamson. Black Jesus greets us from a mural on the side of the clinic. He has locks like seven. His arms stretch the width of the wall, and there are puffy white clouds behind him. Big letters above him remind us that Jesus loves you. Seven passes Black Jesus and goes into the parking lot behind the clinic. He punches in a code to open the gate and parks next to Mama's Camry. I get the tray of sodas, Seven gets the food, and Sakani doesn't take anything because he never takes anything. I hit the buzzer for the back door and wave up at the camera. The door opens into a sterile-smelling hall with bright white walls and white tile floors that reflect us. The hall takes us to the waiting room. A handful of people watch the news on the old box TV in the ceiling or read magazines that have been there since I was little. When this shaggy-haired man sees that we have food, he straightens up and sniffs hard, as if it's for him. What y'all bringing up in here? Miss Felicia asks at the front desk, stretching her neck to see. 
Mama comes from the other hallway in her plain yellow scrubs, following a teary-eyed boy and his mom. The boy sucks on a lollipop, a reward for surviving a shot. There go my babies, Mama says when she sees us. And they got my food, too. Come on, let's go in the back. Save me some, Miss Felicia calls after us. Mama tells her to hush. We set the food out on the break room table. Mama gets some paper plates and plastic utensils that she keeps in a cabinet for days like this. We say grace and dig in. Mama sits on the countertop and eats. Mmm, mmm, this is hitting the spot. Thank you, Seven Baby. I only had a bag of Cheetos today. You didn't have lunch? Sakani asks, with a mouth full of fried rice. Mama points her fork at him. What did I tell you about talking with your mouth full? And for your information, no, I did not. I had a meeting on my lunch break. Now tell me about y'all. How was school? Sakani always talks the longest because he gives every single detail. Seven says his day was fine. I'm as short with my, it was all right. Mama sips her soda. Anything happen? I freaked out when my boyfriend touched me, but nope, nothing. Miss Felicia comes to the door. Lisa, sorry to bother you, but we have an issue up front. I'm on break, Felicia. Don't you think I know that? But she asking for you. It's Brenda. Khalil's mama. My mom sets her plate down. She looks straight at me when she says, stay here. I'm hard-headed, though. I follow her to the waiting room. Miss Brenda sits with her face in her hands. Her hair is uncombed and her white shirt is dingy, almost brown. She has sores and scabs on her arms and legs, and since she's real light-skinned, they show up even more. Mama kneels in front of her. Bryn, hey. Miss Brenda moves her hands. Her red eyes remind me of what Khalil said when we were little, that his mama had turned into a dragon. He claimed that one day he'd become a knight and turn her back. It doesn't make sense that he sold drugs. I would have thought his broken heart wouldn't let him. My baby, his mama cries. Lisa, my baby. Mama sandwiches Miss Brenda's hands between hers and rubs them, not caring that they're nasty looking. I know, Bren. They killed my baby. I know. They killed him. I know. Lord Jesus, Miss Felicia says from the doorway next to her. Seven puts his arm around Sakani. Some patients in the waiting room shake their heads. But, Bren, you gotta get cleaned up, Mama says. That's what he wanted. I can't. My baby ain't here. Yes, you can. You have Cameron, and he needs you. Your mama needs you. Khalil needed you, I want to say. He waited for you and cried for you, 
But where were you? You don't get to cry now. Nuh-uh. It's too late. But she keeps crying, rocking and crying. Tammy and I can get you some help, Bryn, Mama says. But you gotta really want it this time. I don't want to live like this no more. I know. Mama waves Miss Felicia over and hands Miss Felicia her phone. Look through my contacts and find Tammy Harris's number. Call and tell her that her sister is here. Bryn, when was the last time you ate? I don't know. I don't... My baby. Mama straightens up and rubs Miss Brenda's shoulder. I'm going to get you some food. I follow Mama back. She walks kind of fast but passes the food and goes to the counter. She leans on it with her back to me and bows her head, not saying a word. Everything I wanted to say in the waiting room comes bubbling out. How come she gets to be upset? She wasn't there for Khalil. You know how many times he cried about her? Birthdays, Christmas, all that. Why does she get to cry now? Star, please. She hasn't acted like a mom to him. Now all of a sudden, he's her baby. It's bullshit. Mama smacks the counter and I jump. Shut up! She screams. She turns around, tears streaking her face. That wasn't some little friend of hers. That was her son. You hear me? Her son. Her voice cracks. She carried that boy. Birthed that boy. And you have no right to judge her? I have cotton mouth. I... Mama closes her eyes. She massages her forehead. I'm sorry. Fix her a plate, baby, okay? Fix her a plate. I do, and put a little extra of everything on it. I take it to Miss Brenda. She mumbles what sounds like thank you as she takes it. When she looks at me through the red haze, Khalil's eyes stare back at me, and I realize my mom's right. Miss Brenda is Khalil's mama. Regardless. Six. My mom and I arrive at the police station at 4.30 on the dot. A handful of cops talk on phones, type on computers, or stand around. Normal stuff like on Law and Order, but my breath catches. I count. One, two, three, four. I lose count around 12 because the guns in their holsters are all I can see. All of them, two of us. Mama squeezes my hand. Breathe. I didn't realize I had grabbed hers. I take a deep breath and another, and she nods with each one, saying, That's it. You're okay. We're okay. Uncle Carlos comes over, and he and Mama lead me to his desk, where I sit down. I feel eyes on me from all around. The grip tightens around my lungs. Uncle Carlos hands me a sweating bottle of water. Mama puts it up to my lips. 
I take slow sips and look around Uncle Carlos's desk to avoid the curious eyes of the officers. He has almost as many pictures of me and Sicani on display as he has of his own kids. I'm taking her home, Mama tells him. I'm not putting her through this today. She's not ready. I understand, but she has to talk to them at some point, Lisa. She's a vital part of this investigation. Mama sighs. Carlos, I get it, he says, in a noticeably lower voice. Believe me, I do. Unfortunately, if we want this investigation done right, she has to talk to them. If not today, then another day. Another day of waiting and wondering what's going to happen. I can't go through that. I want to do it today, I mumble. I want to get it over with. They look at me like they just remembered I'm here. Uncle Carlos kneels in front of me. Are you sure, baby girl? I nod before I lose my nerve. All right, Mama says, but I'm going with her. That's totally fine, Uncle Carlos says. I don't care if it's not fine, she looks at me. She's not doing this alone. Those words feel as good as any hug I've ever gotten. Uncle Carlos keeps an arm around me and leads us to a small room that has nothing in it but a table and some chairs. An unseen air conditioner hums loudly, blasting freezing air into the room. All right, Uncle Carlos says. I'll be outside, okay? Okay, I say. He kisses my forehead with his usual two pecks. Mama takes my hand, and her tight squeeze tells me what she doesn't say out loud. I got your back. We sit at the table. She's still holding my hand when the two detectives come in. A young white guy with slick black hair and a Latina with lines around her mouth and a spiky haircut. Both of them wear guns on their waists. Keep your hands visible. No sudden moves. Only speak when spoken to. Hi, Star and Mrs. Carter the woman says, holding out her hand. I'm Detective Gomez, and this is my partner, Detective Wilkes. I let go of my mom's hand to shake the detective's hand. Hello? My voice is changing already. It always happens around other people, whether I'm at Williamson or not. I don't talk like me or sound like me. I choose every word carefully and make sure I pronounce them well. I can never, ever let anyone think I'm ghetto. It's so nice to meet you both, Wilkes says. Considering the circumstances, I wouldn't call it nice, says Mama. Wilkes' face and neck get extremely red. What he means is we've heard so much about you both, Gomez says. Carlos always gushes about his wonderful family. We feel like we know you already. She's laying it on extra thick. Please, have a seat. Gomez points to a chair, and she and Wilkes sit across from us. Just so you know, you're being recorded, but it's simply so we can have Star's statement on record. Okay, I say. 
There it is again. All perky and shit. I'm never perky. Detective Gomez gives the date and time and the names of the people in the room and reminds us that we're being recorded. Wilkes scribbles in his notebook. Mama rubs my back. For a moment, there's only the sound of pencil on paper. All right, then. Gomez adjusts herself in her chair and smiles, the lines around her mouth deepening. Don't be nervous, Star. You haven't done anything wrong. We just want to know what happened. I know I haven't done anything wrong, I think. But it comes out as, yes, ma'am. You're 16, right? Yes, ma'am. How long did you know Khalil? Since I was three. His grandmother used to babysit me. Wow, she says, all teacher-like, stretching out the word. That's a long time. Can you tell us what happened the night of the incident? You mean the night he was killed? Shit. Gomez's smile dims. The lines around her mouth aren't as deep, but she says, The night of the incident, yes. Start where you feel comfortable. I look at Mama. She nods. My friend Kenya and I went to a house party hosted by a guy named Darius, I say. Thump, 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 I drum the table. Stop. No sudden moves. I lay my hands flat to keep them visible. He has one every spring break, I say. Khalil saw me, came over, and said hello. Do you know why he was at the party? Gomez asks. Why does anybody go to a party to party? I assume it was for recreational purposes, I say. He and I talked about things going on in our lives. What kind of things, she questions. His grandmother has cancer. I didn't know until he told me that evening. I see, Gomez says. What happened after that? A fight occurred at the party, so we left together in his car. Khalil didn't have anything to do with the fight? I raise an eyebrow. Nah. Damn it. Proper English. I sit up straight. I mean, no, ma'am. We were talking when the fight occurred. Okay, so you two left. Where were you going? He offered to take me home or to my father's grocery store. Before we could decide, 115 pulled us over. Who? she asks. The officer. That's his badge number, I say. I remember it. Wilkes scribbles. I see, Gomez says. Can you describe what happened next? I don't think I'll ever forget what happened. But saying it out loud, that's different and hard. My eyes prickle. I blink, staring at the table. Mama rubs my back. Look up, Star. My parents have this thing where they never want me or my brothers to talk to somebody without looking them in their eyes. They claim that a person's eyes say more than their mouth and that it goes both ways. If we look someone in their eyes and mean what we say, they should have little reason to doubt us. I look at Gomez. 
Khalil pulled over to the side of the road and turned the ignition off, I say. 115 put his brights on. He approached the window and asked Khalil for his license and registration. Did Khalil comply? Gomez asked. He asked the officer why he pulled us over first. Then he showed his license and registration. Did Khalil seem irate during this exchange? Annoyed, not irate, I say. He felt that the cop was harassing him. Did he tell you this? No, but I could tell. I assumed the same thing myself. Shit. Gomez scoots closer. Maroon lipstick stains her teeth, and her breath smells like coffee. And why was that? Breathe. The room isn't hot. You're nervous. Because we weren't doing anything wrong, I say. Khalil wasn't speeding or driving recklessly. It didn't seem like he had a reason to pull us over. I see. What happened next? The officer forced Khalil out the car. Forced? She says. Yes, ma'am. He pulled him out. Because Khalil was hesitant, right? Mama makes this throaty sound, like she was about to say something but stopped herself. She purses her lips and rubs my back in circles. I remember what Daddy said. Don't let them put words in your mouth. No, ma'am, I say to Gomez. He was getting out on his own, and the officer yanked him the rest of the way. She says, I see again, but she didn't see it, so she probably doesn't believe it. What happened next? She asks. The officer patted Khalil down three times. Three? Yeah, I counted. Yes, ma'am. He didn't find anything. He then told Khalil to stay put while he ran his license and registration. But Khalil didn't stay put, did he? She says. He didn't pull the trigger on himself either. Shit, your fucking big mouth. The detectives glance at each other. A moment of silent conversation. The walls move in closer. The grip around my lungs returns. I pull my shirt away from my neck. I think we're done for today, Mama says, taking my hand as she starts to stand up. But, Mrs. Carter, we're not finished. I don't care. Mom, I say, and she looks down at me. It's okay. I can do this. She gives them a glare similar to the one she gives me and my brothers when we've pushed her to her limit. She sits down, but holds on to my hand. Okay, Gomez says. So he patted Khalil down and told him he would check his license and registration. What next? Khalil opened the driver's side door and... Pow! 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 Blood. Tears crawl down my cheeks. I wipe them on my arm. The officer shot him. Do you... Gomez starts, but Mama holds a finger toward her. Could you please give her a second, 
she says. It sounds more like an order than a question. Gomez doesn't say anything. Wilkes scribbles some more. My mom wipes some of my tears for me. Whenever you're ready, she says. I swallow the lump in my throat and nod. Okay, Gomez says, and takes a deep breath. Do you know why Khalil came to the door, Star? I think he was coming to ask if I was okay. You think? I'm not a telepath. Yes, ma'am. He started asking, but didn't finish, because the officer shot him in the back. More salty tears fall on my lips. Gomez leans across the table. We all want to get to the bottom of this, Star. We appreciate your cooperation. I understand this is hard right now. I wipe my face on my arm again. Yeah. Yeah. She smiles and says in that same sugary, sympathetic tone, Now, do you know if Khalil sold narcotics? Pause. What the fuck? My tears stop. For real, my eyes get dry with the quickness. Before I can say anything, my mom goes, What does that have to do with anything? It's only a question, Gomez says. Do you, Star? All the sympathy, the smiles, the understanding. This chick was baiting me. Investigating or justifying? I know the answer to her question. I knew it when I saw Khalil at the party. He never wore new shoes. And jewelry? Those little 99-cent chains he bought at the beauty supply store didn't count. Miss Rosalie just confirmed it. But what the hell does that have to do with him getting murdered? Is that supposed to make all of this okay? Gomez tilts her head. Star, can you please answer the question? I refuse to make them feel better about killing my friend. I straighten up, look Gomez dead in her eyes and say, I never saw him sell drugs or do drugs. But do you know if he sold them? She asks. He never told me he did, I say, which is true. Khalil never flat out admitted it to me. Do you have knowledge of him selling them? I heard things. Also true. She sighs. I see. Do you know if he was involved with the King Lords? No. The Garden Disciples? No. Did you consume any alcohol at the party? She asks. I know that move from Law and Order. She's trying to discredit me. No, I don't drink. Did Khalil? Well, wait one second, Mama says. Are y'all putting Khalil and Star on trial? Or the cop who killed him? Wilkes looks up from his notes. I don't quite understand, Mrs. Carter, Gomez sputters. You haven't asked my child about that cop yet, Mama says. You keep asking her about Khalil, like he's the reason he's dead. Like she said, he didn't pull the trigger on himself. We just want the whole picture, Mrs. Carter, 
that's all. 115 killed him, I say, and he wasn't doing anything wrong. How much of a bigger picture do you need? Fifteen minutes later, I leave the police station with my mom. Both of us know the same thing. This is going to be some bullshit. Context of white supremacy. Woo. If you have commentary you would like to share, the number to dial 641-715-3640. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. I don't know how many people were with us for Neil Postman. Uh Crazy talk, stupid talk. Uh, we read that a while back, right at, towards the end of 2017. But he gave a talk in the 90s where he was saying that you would go and talk to people and ask them a legal question. And sometimes they would know the correct information. Like they would ask them, like, did you know that an attorney uh, is an officer of the court, and they would say, "Oh, yeah, I, I, that 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 that's what it is," and they would be like, "Yeah, that's you're correct. That's the, how did you know that?" And they would say, "Oh, yeah," and I think they said, "Oh, I saw that on Law and Order," <laughs> and he mentioned this with with great despair that uh, this is how people are getting their information based on what television dramas and sitcoms they've seen over the past few seasons. Uh, just reminded me of that. Anywho, uh, folks have commentary. Uh, feel free. Uh, love to hear your, your thoughts, uh, feedback. Uh, I will just mention, <laughs> I will explain during my commentary, but I will just mention the book that was also from our book club, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks by Rebecca Skloot, Suspected Race Soldier. That has come to mind a lot while we have been reading this text the last week and a half, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks by Rebecca Skloot, Suspected Race Soldier. I'll explain when I get to my commentary. Uh, the caller who dialed in from the Vope line that I don't think we heard from previously, did you have commentary? Greetings, HV. Greetings, Gus. Greetings to everyone on the line. Um, I just wanted to say that I think that... Um, what you what you brought up about her having a ghostwriter, I think that that was absolutely brilliant. I think that she may have written some of this book. I think that a lot of it was influenced and written um, by white people. And I think uh, the person who said something about she laid her head on her shoulder and she had a crush on her on her Dixie cut. That's a black female, right? I think that's a white female. I could be incorrect. Did you all think that was a black female or a white female? Jess? Well, not a, I don't think I mean Jess. I think I mean the person who says she had a crush on on the Dixie Cut. Oh, well, that was the main character, Star, who was saying that. So she's a black female. Okay, yeah. I think that um, white people wrote that part, and I think that they were trying to um, homosexualize um star um for the reason that uh Mr. Demery Ford brought up I think that that they were trying to push that and I think that they that the white people are trying to push that on there it's a continuance in my view of them trying to push that on black people um 
because this book is supposed to be, you know, targeted for us. And so um, I think, uh, and just like uh, Thomas in New York said, it just seems like so much of it, it just doesn't sound like somebody black wrote it. And it, it just, so much of it is so exaggerated. And certain things are just so hateful, like, oh, they didn't even ask about Khalil and this, that, and the other. I think that's pushing the narrative that, oh, you know, nobody cares about, you know, black people. And in general, that's true. At the same time, when these things happen, a lot of us, you know, a lot of black people are very concerned. They're standing in the streets and doing a whole bunch of other things. And so I just think so much of it is so um, exaggerated and it just it's a whole lot of white influence and I think even white writers like you said and editors and I'll mute my line thanks for taking my call yes ma'am thank you for the commentary uh any other folks if you have commentary uh if you have a hand up line should be open proceed yes ma'am here yes sir Mr. Demi Four. Okay, uh, before I get started, I'd like to comment on what you just said about the reference to law and order. It's a coincidence. I was uh, just doing a little research on uh, Rachel Gentile to listen to, you know, how how they uh, victimized her during the Trayvon Martin uh, trial. And the white reporter used that exact phrase. It's just like law and order. So I was like, you know, Gus is right on on that because that's not something that uh, I think that a black person would say. I think that's something that a white person might say. And I wanted to bring up, uh, she mentioned, about, uh, I want to get into Haley, but I don't want to get uh, too far because I've read a little further. But um, uh, Rachel, the way she's uh, uh, exhibiting um, her racism and Star does not realize it. And I don't know, at, at one point you're, you're, you're uh, posting images of Emmett Till, and then the next moment you, uh, you don't even know when uh, somebody's mistreating you. So it, uh, the book is kind of given some uh, mixed uh, uh, emotions. Uh, because it seems that Star cares about her friends, but these friends, uh, I don't see how they're expressing any uh, empathy or care uh, in return. And she seems to accept that and actually feels normal when she's around them, more so than when she's in the so-called hood. So... uh, like I say, um, I hope that uh, the book gets better and that she progresses in her growth as a character because 
it's uh, somewhat confusing, and that uh, these young people, if an individual doesn't seek counsel early enough and someone that they trust, then the uh, teenagers can make decisions that can change the whole trajectory or trajectory of their life. And uh, I'll leave my line on that. Uh, thanks, Phil. I'm not going to hold out a whole lot of hope that this book will get better, but I could be in error. And that would be wonderful if it takes a drastic turn. And yeah, anyway, other folks who dialed in, if you have uh, commentary, feel free. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yeah, I wanted to uh, make a comment about um, the co mention of commercial products. Um, it's it's very very high. I heard Cheetos, Chinese food, twice um, when they were talking to Khalil's mother. Even though she had just finished eating Chinese food, they started making more food. Like they they eating a lot, and I noticed that her mother's. Uh, the main character, her mother's legitimate authority, as contrasted to her father, is embedded in these eating habits and this um, lack of suspicion of her boyfriend. I, I may have been mistaken, but I think she mentioned something happened with her boyfriend to her mother. Um, and then with Khalil, uh, once again, he gets contextualized. His mother gets contextualized as crackheads and crack users, crack sellers. But there's no mention of the CIA. There's no mention of government bodies who orchestrated these type of things, who intentionally deprivated people and kept them impoverished and then flooded these drugs in here to make money to fund counter-revolutionaries um, uh, counter overseas. So I thought, I thought that was interesting. And then um, in this section, there's also a more intense private mourning, especially when they're talking to the mother. And um, I think that's interesting, um, especially given the first section. I think it's really demonstrative of a, of a high tolerance for black pain um, that white people have, a really, really high tolerance for things we consider traumatic. Um, that, that was all I had to say. Thanks. Great points. Great points. Uh, other folks uh, have commentary? Uh Yes, can I be heard? Yes, sir. I, I'm going to uh, somewhat collude with the last caller uh, because I kind of like, uh, uh, in a raw sense, uh, made, was making a tally of the uh, the uh, uh, non-white black participants in the book and the white participants in the book and uh, the black participants are full of a lot of flaws uh, uh, as far as the uh, the author is describing uh, uh, a lot of them, whereas I haven't observed uh, any really significant flaws uh, with the uh, the white uh, uh, characters in the book other than uh, the uh, enforcement official uh, murdering uh as quote unquote murdering the uh the non white black male uh which is you know something that uh 
uh, is to be expected anyway. But, uh, yeah, I've kind of like arbitrarily uh, was just uh, taking a toll on that and noticed the difference. Uh, uh, what Did anybody say anything about that uh, as opposed to the I – don't, I don't – in a realistic sense, I, I, I wouldn't mind – the uh, the uh, young person being uh, escorted with the uh, a parent, but uh, shouldn't they should they have an attorney <laughs> in that in that uh, in that uh, uh, room? Uh, and I'm and I'm saying it, it should it should be based on what I've heard in the book of being affordable. Since the uh, I believe the uh, the father was uh, mentioning about. Uh, uh, giving uh someone uh money i think for the funeral i think that's what it was for and saying that i'm not going to accept it if you give it back uh i would say that uh it would have been essential to to uh contract an attorney to uh <laughs> to sit in that uh that office because it sounded like i'm not an expert on it but it sounded like the uh the discourse of the enforcement officials uh, is somewhat realistic uh, uh, based on uh, what I heard in the, in, in the reading. And uh, that's all I have to say. Anybody that, I, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know. I think I heard somebody mention about uh, she should have had an attorney. Is that, is that correct? Leave Thomas in New York uh, brought that up after the first audio segment about the attorney. Yeah. In that in that holding that, that holding room as she was being questioned, yeah. Yeah, appreciate that, Tom. Uh retired firefighter in Florida. Appreciate that. Very logical, very important. Uh other folks uh, have commentary? Hello. Yes, ma'am. Hi, thank you so much again. Um, I agree everyone has wonderful comments. Um, I guess my issue was with the cursing at the mother. Um, I don't, I've only been black for 40 years, um, but if I had cursed at my mother like that before I turned the age of 18, I would not be on this phone today. Um, I'm not saying my mother was a violent person. She was not. She was not prone to beating me and, you know, going all out the way. But certain things, as far as I know with black people, you just don't do. Um, maybe I haven't been a kid for a while, and maybe this is the new trend. I don't know. But I, that part, I just, I just, I guess I just, I just don't understand that. Like, I still, I hardly use the word lie in front of her again. I've only been black for 40 years. Um, my father covers my ears if he has to say a curse again. I'm 40 years old. So that part, I just did not understand that. Is that something new among the black kids today? Because I don't have any black children, and unfortunately I'm not around any, so... Maybe someone can tell me that because I just I didn't get that part at all. How she just let that slide. I'm glad she corrected her about the treatment of the of the mother of the young man who who was murdered. But yeah, that would have been a point right there of contention. I don't have children either. Can't speak to that. <laughs> Other other folks uh, who are with us, if you have commentary, proceed. Did we get it, everybody? Did we miss anyone? 
I will assume we nabbed everybody. Uh, I mentioned Rebecca Skloot, uh, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, uh, at the beginning of the second round of commentary. Uh, we read that way back, I think 2014. It's been four years. Can you believe it? I'm still upset that I didn't ask Dr. Welsing about that book because I didn't know that that was a subject that was uh, significant to her, something she really paid a lot of attention to and enjoyed uh, talk conversing about. Uh, but when we read that book, uh, and this is about Henrietta Lacks, the black female, where uh, white doctors uh, stole raped her cells, I think is the language that one of her family members used, but stole her uh, genetic material uh, without getting permission and then lied to her family and relatives and stole their genetic material without getting their permission uh, to continue their research. And they made all these great, enormous scientific gains for years and years and years. Uh, but in that book, this white woman, Rebecca Skloot, she's telling the story of uh, Henrietta Lacks and her family, generations of her family. And I said throughout that book, the months that we read it, I think Thomas in New York was here and others, I said, I find it hard to believe that you could read this book and sympathize with the black people. Uh, I think they had criminals and drug addicts and, you know, I just <laughs> illiterate folks, not well educated, all because of the system of racism, and white supremacy. But uh, they were just presented in a way where I just didn't think that one would easily sympathize with these black people. Like, I think it would just be they're morons and idiots. And even if they did get some of the billions of dollars from this, they would just waste it on crack and drugs and liquor and, you know, God knows what else. Like, you know, that's kind of that's kind of the way that it came across to me. It's just not something that would inspire you to think well of black people. I have that feeling reading this book the entire time and just, you know, why on earth would I want to read a book that is just every other page about a black person dying and being shot and killed either by the police uh, or another black person or a near shooting at a party and a beating at the shooting. And then we have to relive uh, the shootings and beatings and killings and nightmares. And I mean, who on earth would want to read, and particularly for young children. I mean, it's, come on, man, come on. Only in the system of racism, white supremacy. And then again, marketed to children. This is a young adult book, allegedly. Uh, I don't have a whole lot of, of commentary for the second portion. I think you all uh, added great remarks. One thing, when they say, she says it again, when she's talking about how she's going to code switch to talk to the police officers, again, failure to understand the system of racism, white supremacy. Uh, you are the ghetto, even with pristine King's English. You can have a doctorate in English. You are the ghetto. That is understanding the logic the truth of the system of white supremacy, which I think is sorely lacking in this book and, you know, most books. Uh, the, certainly the, the aspect about the attorney could not be underscored. Uh, black people, Khalif Browder. It cannot be underscored uh, that this sort of thing happens to black people all the time, 
all over the world, not just nationally. Uh, but I mean, as soon as they get to that line of questioning about, you know, were you drinking at the party? Do you know if he was a drug dealer? <laughs> like, whoa, the attorney is supposed to hop in. And, whoa, we do not answer. And in fact, we are done. We have cooperated. We have nothing else to say, even if it gets to that point. That's why you have someone there who has expertise. And again, the only character who was hinting at that Maverick, who is allegedly the author's favorite character gets shushed and ignored. Anybody have any final comments before we conclude this week's session? May I be here? Yes, ma'am. That's funny. Uh, Gus, uh, I was thinking of, uh, the Rebecca school, the Henrietta Lacks thing too. Um, probably, a little bit before the second um, audio was going to come on and you guys were all discussing uh, just the homosexualizing of the, of star and things of that nature. Um, just all the, the sandwiching of, I would say being victimized between being a perpetrator. So it's, it's very, um, typical of how white people write, like with Rebecca School, where she has, you know, all of this stuff that these doctors are doing, stealing all her sales and all of that, and then you have all this pathology in the middle of it, and then you have, you know, talking a little bit about, you know, them victimizing uh, Miss Lax again, and then you have the the pathologizing, but you have so much of that, so much of the so-called pathology that you really... Uh, the, 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 the victimization that, that, that the victims are experiencing, you really forget about that somewhat. It's, it's really difficult to focus on that. Like the, the, the pathology is so loud and so stressed and it's so much of it and it's so excessive that it's almost like you can't help but focus on that. And it's the same thing with this book. Like it just seems like what has taken center stage is all of these um these black murderers who are just murdering each other more so than uh, I believe it's Khalil having been murdered by uh, cops. And um, there's just a lot of, uh, last thing I wanted to quickly say is that the book, there's to me a lot of propaganda. Like there's a lot of like purposeful messages. It seems like white writers are trying to send and they just look like, they look like billboards or public service announcements. It just sounds just so generic and just just like typical propaganda that you see from um, white people and just racist. And uh, I'll meet my line. Thanks for taking my call. I agree. I I even say that with the title. Like I I'd put that with cliche as well. I think that's pretty pretty easy to just take Tupac's acronym uh, for thug and to make that into uh, the title of a book that's just going to center around black trauma and shooting and a lot of the things that he talked about in his song lyrics. That's pretty. It's not that far from tying in Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. We'll just cookie cut from Tupac songs or we'll cookie cut from Fresh Prince of Bel-Air episodes. Not that much of a difference at times. Maybe I'm being crude. Any other comments? Uh, I'd like to... Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. All right. Uh, I'd like to pose a question in that system of racism, white supremacy, 
which I believe that we're in. And given the power structure of the relationship between Chris and Star, him being rich and she being from the so-called uh, lower income section, uh, I believe that should qualify as at least attempted rape, if not uh, uh, rape already. And I may be wrong, but I'll leave my line. Good point. Retired firefighter. Yes, sir. I, I was going to uh, attempt to uh, comment on the, the uh, female caller's uh, question about uh, uh, incorrect uh, dialogue uh, from uh, uh, attempted parent to uh, offspring. And uh, I can only go. I can only go by my uh, personal experience as far as being a uh, an offspring myself, uh, and uh, my experiences as an attempted uh, father. And uh, I would say that in both instances, and uh, and I learned it myself from my uh, primarily my uh, uh, attempted father and mother. Uh, that uh it takes a you know planning process and and to have uh, expected uh results uh and if the process is uh uh constructive it's probably it's not going to guarantee but it's probably going to uh, uh elevate uh, a constructive result uh in the end in how you uh, uh relate to uh not just uh your offspring but anybody uh, and that's why Mr. Fuller stresses on the idea of having a code. Uh, I would say uh, in the negative on probably what is uh, an example of uh, the, the, the opposite or the negative part. If I would say if you're only about maybe 13, 12, 13, 14, 15 years older than your offspring uh, and you don't, there's not a supportive uh, 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 body or bodies around, uh, that's constructive around you, uh, you're probably going to have problems and you're probably going to see that type of uh, negative, constructive, uh, destructive uh, relationship uh, between a uh, uh, attempted parent and a offspring. That's it. That's just one example, that's all. Anybody else have a concise comment they need to get in before we wrap? Folks satisfied? Phenomenal. Uh, we will be back next week. Uh, I think, at least in my view, and I mean those numbers, it could be totally bogus uh, about the numbers of copies of this book sold. It could all be propaganda. And <clears throat> even beyond the book, it could be you know that they are requiring this book to be sold in schools uh that's the case where it's required reading that's going to dr dramatically push up uh book sales in the whole nine all of this this could be leading up to the movie uh it could just be that this is supposed to i don't know the exact uh release date release date uh but whenever this comes out if this is being touted as a book that is allegedly against racism and this is the book that is the black lives matter production you gotta go see the movie and then you got a whole 
uh, crop of students, black students who have read the book, they might be required to go see the movie. That's the way that they do it. Sometimes if you read a book uh, in school, they'll take you to see uh, the movie or they'll make a field trip out of it or whatever. Or just, you know, you might have an interest uh, yourself. Just, hey, we, we read this book. Let's check it out. They're talking about it. And it's about racism and all that. Uh, man, confu- oh, and I even got my uh, sound clip as we can head out before we wrap up the broadcast. Uh, if anyone is ignorant about racism, it's black people. Black people. Black people. Black people. Black people. This is going to be a high exhibit on my list. If indeed you do have a sizable number of black people who think that this book is representative of white allyship. And why does white allyship have to come with the penis? Why does white allyship have to come with, you know, some trashy sexual behavior where even within the confines of this book, the sexual intercourse is trashy, <laughs> like you get mistreatment even here uh, where they're met. Anyway, uh, I, I hope that people will take this, uh, have a lot of questions. I think Thomas in New York said his child is supposed to be reading this. Lots and lots of questions as you go through the book. Maybe you can even use this as a companion guide to go through because I mean, wow. Uh, and I would be so curious to know what is taught in school. And I think we I've said this before on the program. What is the A plus paper that a black child, black girl, black boy is supposed to write for a white female instructor? What is the A-plus paper that you're supposed to say about this book, Star and Chris? Rhetorical question. Folks can think about that for the coming weeks. We'll be here tomorrow. Compensatory call in 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. We'll catch up on what's gone down the last seven days. Uh, Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. I hope it was a constructive investment of your Friday evening. Despite what we heard in the book, sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. Uh, Race soldiers, they have done a lot of damage, even as we heard in the book. Uh, When non-white people are not making the best decisions, when we are intoxicated, they have exploited that for generations. That's one easy thing that we could do uh, to hopefully minimize some of these instances uh, make sure that we're sober so that our brain computer is function- functioning at maximum efficiency so that we can make stellar decisions, perhaps even life-saving decisions. Certainly, if you're going to be in a vehicle, buckle up. I uh, just saw a report this week where they said nine out of 10, really, they probably should have said 10 out of nine, but the way it was reported, it said nine out of 10 arrests in one particular county for seatbelt seat belt violations were black motorists. And they were saying, we think this could be racist. <laughs> or niggers just don't buckle their seatbelts. We told you they're no good. Anyway, all of that, uh, again, buckle up every time you're in a vehicle, uh, driver or passenger. Let's try to do everything that we can to minimize contact with race soldiers. That's it. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. 
remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately cow signing out thanks all for tuning in nigga you so brainwashed i'm a victim Your brother problem. You're a victim I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs> With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.